Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, you guys are in for a treat this week. I know that most people really love to hear our producer episodes, and this week we get to hear from producer Alan Shacklock. So in the 70s, Alan came up through one of those great British bluesy, proggy type bands of the 70s called Babe Ruth. He was the primary songwriter and lead guitarist in that band. They had a lot of success in other parts of the world, not so much in the States, but they were kind of a big deal there for a while. In fact, their biggest song is probably this one you're listening to right here. It's called The Mexican. And interestingly enough, this song goes on to be one of the most sampled songs in hip hop history. Alan gives this story in here. It is fascinating how this came to be. Anyway, around the late 70s, Alan decides he wants to go into production. And we talk about several of the artists that he worked with. They include Dexy's Midnight Runners, The Joe Boxers, The Alarm. And that part actually kind of bummed me out because we had Eddie McDonald on here recently. It's one of our biggest episodes. He was such a sweet man. And Alan has a different angle on his experience with The Alarm that's sheds a, a different light on the whole story than I think what Eddie told us. Interesting stuff. You'll have to draw your own conclusions. Uh, we talk about Meatloaf. He worked with me. <laughs> he, is, uh, he doesn't pull any punches about Meatloaf. That part is fascinating. Uh, we go deep on Roger Daltrey's solo career. Uh, Alan put out, produced a couple of his albums in the 80s that I really love. We go deep on Roger. We talk about Dennis DeYoung from Styx. He worked with Dennis. And then there's stories throughout with uh, everyone from Jeff Beck to Andrew Lloyd Webber makes an appearance in here. In fact, he name drops at least half a dozen former guests of ours in here in casual conversation. It's really fun. Uh, speaking of name dropping, I've heard from enough of you that I know that those are the things that you like the best. You like to hear the stories and you like to hear the name dropping. And I have to say, pound for pound, Alan might uh, deliver on those two things more than just about anyone we've ever had on the show before. If you love rock and roll, you are going to be blown away. His story, in fact, I got to be honest, I made a little bit of an executive decision here. Normally, as you know, we try to play all the songs that come up in conversation. Well, I decided not to do so much of that this time. There is music in here, obviously, but we don't... If we were to insert everything that ever came up, we would be interrupting the flow about every 30 seconds. And you can tell with Alan, it's best to just let him go. And he gives us basically a history lesson. I mean, he was there for all of this amazing stuff. The history of British rock and roll from the 60s through the early 90s is basically summarized in this conversation. In fact, if anything, I was kind of in the way. I normally try to guide these conversations, you know, but I was probably just in the way. So anyway, I think you guys will love this and you'll be blown away by the honesty. And it's a huge thanks goes out to listener Mike Radcliffe for making this happen. Mike suggested Alan, put me in contact with him. It worked. This was this is amazing. You guys will love this. Alan called me from his home in Nashville. Well, thank you for doing this with me. I um, I don't hey, know. Thank if... you for. I'm sorry it's taken so long because we, when we first started this, I was in England. You were. Actually, oh, really? Yeah. Actually, five weeks I went uh, with a study abroad. Um, I'm working here with a university called Belmont. Okay, I've heard of it. And uh, yeah, and we uh, 
took a group of students over and uh that's what they call a study abroad sure yeah <laughs> so i i went i went back to the old country oh what were you <laughs> doing nice. over there what what are you teaching yeah. what are you teaching them well i'm i'm taking a group of producing students that are want to be producers like study and music production Mm -hmm. so that's what i teach at the university as well so excellent and uh so they are able to you know navigate the world and see if they want to be quincy jones (laughs) (laughs) oh i wish you know i wish everybody could grow up to be quincy jones that'd that'd make the world an amazing place I always wanted to grow up to be George Martin or Quincy. Mm. I would have taken taken either. (laughs) Yeah. Good for you. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take you back to me being 10 years old. Mm. Um, During the 50s, I grew up in that time. Um, I was in London, and we eventually moved about 20 miles north to a place called Hatfield in Hertfordshire. Now, that seems pretty insignificant right now, but I'm going to put it on the map for you and your listeners pretty quick. I used to play with a friend of mine on a hill near us, uh, near my house, my parents' house. Uh, I was 10. He was nine. And I really loved the music of that time. My father actually introduced me to a lot of the big band jazz stuff. And then I got into what we call the rock and roll. The, the, the mm-hmm. sound of the electric, the electric guitar just excited me beyond all measure. It was particularly in England that we had a, a group there called the Shadows. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the Shadows were kind of like your ventures mm-hmm. uh, over here. The ventures here, they were kind of a very similar sa- sound. Um, for the English groups. They actually had the very first Fender guitars that came in after the embargo in 1958 in England. Hmm. We could not get American instruments. We had to have either German or English instruments, yeah. But they lifted that embargo, and I believe Sir Cliff Richard, Mm. you may know, (laughs) came came over to the United States and brought back quite a few of these guitars for his backing group, which was the Shadows. Mm. Now the Shadows had the Shadow. I'm going to go quick. The Shadows had um, success in their own right. I'm sure you can do the homework on this. Mm-hmm. But by 1960, they'd got a number one called Apache. Apache oh, sure. was written. Apache was written by Jerry Lorden, and it had been covered by some other folks here. But um, this really was the, the the turning point for me. I thought this is what I really want to do. Um, so this little guy who was nine on the hill informed me that his brother and he were going to get bass and drums for Christmas. By this time, I'd got a terrible Spanish guitar that I was trying to figure out how to press the strings down because the action was about an inch high. Mm-hmm. But what eventually my father did a lot of overtime. He was a mailman. And he said, I'm going to get you the electric guitar. So he eventually got me that. Anyway, long story short, they did. Uh, Brian and his brother, John, their name is Glasscock. Sure. G-L- Jethro Tull. G- Hold on. Oh. G-L-A-S-T. 
See, oh, you're way ahead of me. I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> so they. No, that's all right. You, I'm glad you know. You've done. Your I thing. love Jethro Tull. So, yeah, me too. So, John and Brian joined together. We were looking to be like the shadows, so we need one more player. <laughs> My mother came home one day from work and said, "There's a lady at work whose son has equipment." And he has better equipment than we did because I found out what he had. I got on my bicycle and went to 14 Lockley Crescent in Hatfield <laughs> where, where Mick Taylor lived. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Are we with you? Yeah. Stones. Are, are, we, float, are we floating your boat? Yeah. Okay. You're floating my so, boat. That's amazing. I, okay. I, I knocked at his door. He came to the door with his father and I said, we want you to join our group. Uh, he said, well, I'm sorry. He said, I only know two chords and I really want to be what you call a soccer player. He was very good at it. Mm -hmm. He was 12 at this time oh when gosh. we met him. Oh so, so, okay. So we're going to carry on the story. I'll try and be as quick as I can, John. You're doing great. So eventually through much persuasion and me telling him I can teach him more chords because I knew actually, I actually knew B seventh, which was a big deal in mm -hmm. our town. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so he, he said, okay, he reluctantly said he would, he would come and practice with us. Well, it all, it all happened. His father was a, a massive taskmaster. He is mm -hmm. whatever he wanted his son to do would be intense. So he really dug into Mick and said, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it to the nth degree, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we then formed a little band we got a singer. We started to play. A friend of ours who was our music shop owner, store owner, knew somebody who knew someone at EMI, and he said, I can get you an audition. Mm -hmm. All right, so a long story short, at the age of 13, John was 12, Mick was 14, Brian was 15, and a singer called Malcolm, who really is, was a no one, mm -hmm. Took, a, took an audition and passed the audition at EMI and signed with the Beatles label in 1964. That's insane. <laughs> okay, here we go. We're wow. going to go more. Okay. Okay. Yeah, bring okay, it. Okay, so we're, we're going to move on. Well, we went on to the, we opened, there was a weekend of the NME Poll Winners concert sure. in 1964. We, play, we played on that. Wow. We opened for Manfred Mann. It, oh. it was a weekend. There was Manfred Mann on the Friday, the Rolling Stones on the Saturday, and the Beatles on the Sunday. Oh, my God. So we were 13. Uh, John was 12. I was 13. Um, we were playing insane and then go back into school on Monday and go through the therapy and sit sit with there with yeah. people were loving and hating us because sure. of what we were doing. Now, okay. were you playing originals? Nash Are you guys songwriters too? Or yes. are you playing the stuff you're hearing like the shadows? No, we were playing covers and originals because wow. we started to meet we started to meet songwriters. Our first songwriter was Roger Webb, who was kind of a part time piano player on a on a TV show in the BBC, but he wrote a song for us that didn't do anything, by the way. It just we just got on all the shows because we actually got Brian Somerville, that's the Be the Beatles publicist, and Harold Davison was our manager who hmm. managed a group called the Dave Clark Five. Oh, sure. 
Gosh. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on quickly now to to more hair raising stuff. So that great. band really didn't didn't do much. They booked us on the Ed Sullivan show, but uh, Ed Sullivan was very excited, and Dave Clark was going to introduce us, but they hit a a big kink in the road with our ages. They couldn't get us work permits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So everybody, everybody kind of lost interest and it all fizzled out. Let's move on to when we were 16 uh, and 17. Okay. Uh, when, I, when I was 15, um, I started to take classical guitar lessons because I wanted to go into that. And, and my goal was to get to, to the Royal Academy of Music eventually, which I did do. By the way, I did mm. a, a master's degree at both royal colleges nice. uh, but let's let's go in the middle here and i'm give you more hair raising stuff so <laughs> it in 1966 i want to say uh don't quote me on the dates too much okay. Okay. um we we mick taylor and i have become massive blues fans mm-hmm. we were really fans of the blues and we were fans of all of the stuff that was coming out of the United States. We just couldn't get enough of it. And we were just practicing together all the time and learning, you know, licks by Albert Collins and, of course, B.B. King and the Three Kings, as we know, Freddie, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So now we move on. And uh, anyway, I get a call from a friend of mine who says, I've recommended you for an audition for Chris Farlow like F-A-R-L-O-W-E and the Thunderbirds. Nothing to do with the American Thunderbirds. Okay. So um, in these Thunderbirds at this point was Carl Palmer from Emerson, Lake and Palmer. <laughs> Goodness. And Peter Solly, who ended up pr- being a producer who for the Romantics later in the 80s. Oh, love but, the Romantics. Uh, yeah, the lead guitar player was Albert Lee. Oh, so here's what? a great story. Okay, oh we we went to the audition. My friend Chris Barlow phoned me. The next call I got was from my dear friend Jimmy McCulloch, who was in Wings. Mm-hmm. E- eventually, he was in Thunderclap Newman and then Wings. Sure. Wow. So Jim Jimmy was 16. I was 17 at this point. I think I think it was it worked like that. So Jimmy said, "Would you?" Are you going to the Farlow audition? I said, Yeah, Jim. I said, Look, good. If you if you want it, you get it because already I've won a scholarship to go to music college, which I was committed to. I was absolutely committed to. Mm-hmm. So I said, We went down there. There were seventy five guitar players waiting <laughs> to play. Sure. It became between. Ironically, it became between me and Jim. And I said, Look, you take Jim because he can do it permanently. I can only stay with you a year. What the singer said to me was. By the way, he the singer had had a number one written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richard called "Out of Time." You might want to check it out. Oh, gosh. So, okay. so, so, Albert Lee being one of my favorite guitar players, and, and humbly, and in all humility, I'm no Albert Lee. I, mm. I could fake it, but nobody can be Albert Lee. So, so, they said, "Well, Jimmy's great, but we'll take Alan because he's closer to Albert." So I played in that band for a year. Uh, Carl Palmer left after six months to, to join the crazy world of Arthur Brown. Oh yeah, <laughs> and and then eventually, eventually went on to Atomic Rooster, and then eventually formed the group with Keith, Keith Emerson and Greg Lake. Yeah, 
Greg Lake was in a band called The Gods, who I was friends with, who John Glasscock actually joined mm. in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So this is more history. So I'm going to get out to one day. I'm going to let you riddle me with correct questions, but I'm, I have to get through this. I love this. But here's, 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 here's the rub. So John Mayles Blues Breakers mm. in 1966 were playing in our town, or a town very close to us, about three or four miles away. It's actually Welling Garden City Community Center. Mm. And we, of course, were very excited. So Mick Taylor and I went to this concert to watch Eric Clapton play with John Nail. This was the original John Nail's mm. Blues Breakers. You know, when Eric had joined and it, there was an album with that says the what we call the Beano album, where he's reading the Beano comic. Okay. So we got to the gig and John Nail came on and it, there was quiet. And he said, I'm sorry, he said, Eric Clapton has not shown up tonight. But if anybody wants to come up and jam, then please feel free. And I just said to Mick, I said, uh, we knew the stuff back. We we learned the album together. So Mick, I said, you go up. I'm going to go and have a drink with the lads. So he went up and John Mayle's jaw dropped because Mm. Mick knew it. No, he knew it. note for note. He Mm -hmm. could play all those tunes. So. Then what happened, they went through a morphing period where they got a guitar player called Peter Green. Peter Green. Oh, oh my gosh. Fle- Fleetwood Mac. Mac. Yeah. Right. And then Fleetwood Mac, of course, became a different morph when it came into America. Mm-hmm. But uh, Peter Green, when he formed Fleetwood Mac, immediately John Mayle called Mick and said, will you join the group? And this would be 1968. Mm. And he did. Wow. Then, then, then I went off. Then I went off to music college. It's, it's insane. I went off to music college, and then in 1969, we were sitting at John Glasscock and Brian Glasscock's house. Brian, by the way, ended up in a group called the Motels. You may remember the Motels, like the U- the U.S. version. Suddenly, last yes. summer, Martha Ma- Davis. Martha, yes, Martha oh, and the Motels. I just talked to Martha recently. Drummer. I love her. Right, she's been. Hey, give her my best. She's fabulous. She so, is. so um, anyway, um, we were just sitting at seventy-four Row Green Lane in England, and a knock came at the door, and it was Mick Taylor. It was a Tuesday, I think, if I remember. Don't quote me on the day. Mm-hmm. He said, "Guess what? Guess what? Mick Jagger has just called me to join the Rolling Stones." Oh my. And I said, what did you, what did you say? And he said, I don't know. He said exactly the same thing when I asked him to join our little group. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I said to him, you are, I said, you are insane if you don't do this. Yeah. And he, I said, give him a call back and tell him yes. And at that Sunday he played on Hyde Park. Oh my gosh. That that's like yeah, a right. you just illustrated a like a little microcosm right. of British rock right. royalty. Right. And yeah. and there's more. There's, oh, there's keep more. it. But, Bring oh, it. I I forgot I forgot one one minor point. Okay. Go back to the Thunderbirds when Carl Palmer left, John Bonham joined. Oh man. Of course he did. For for <laughs> for six for six months. And he played with me for six more. We played together for six months in the band. Wow. But John said, John said, I'm not staying either because I went off to music college. John said, I'm forming a group with Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, and Terry Reed. Oh. 
So I said, okay, I said, well, I I can tell you it'll never happen because Jimmy and John are playing on sessions. I've actually played on sessions with them myself because when I was 15 and 16, I could read music. So I, I did recording sessions. Wow. And they in those in those days it was anonymous. Anyway, let's move to seventies. Okay. Do you want to go do you want me to go on? I, I sure. Well I on. no, this, so, I mean this is so, this is I have a lot of stuff yeah, I want to ask you about, but this yeah, is gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can and I can I'll spend enough time. Okay. But I finished my undergraduate and during that time I started to compose songs. Uh and I formed a little band um when I was in, I think I was in my third or fourth year at the college to just try out my material. We were rehearsing in London and at the top of the basement of that building was a young man called Roger Dean. He was an artist Mm -hmm. and he came down and said, Hey, you guys are pretty good. Why don't you come up to my studio? He said, I'm doing album covers. He said, I've done a couple and he said, I'm starting to do things for more labels. And I said, well, what, what groups are you working with? He said, well, I'm working with a group called Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, so I said, oh. So we went up to his place, and he had done all of those covers. They were all on his wall. Yeah. All, the, all of the blueprints and the stuff of, like, topographic oceans. I mean, this was incredible. I mean, walking into his place. And he was like a modern-day Leonardo. So anyway, long story short, he introduced us at the time we were called Shacklock mm-hmm. to Harvest Records. And Harvest Records ended up signing us. Harvest Records were the record label to the Pink Floyd and ELO. Right. And he okay. did your album covers, correct? He did our album cover. That's right. Yeah, one. The second one was done by Storm, um, and God bless his last name's gone. I'm sorry, that's age. Um, he did. Storm did the Pink Floyd's covers. He did. Right. He did dogs. He did I know. Dogs. I'm blanking on his first name too. I just saw the Victoria and Albert right. um, show right, last year. Right. Anyway, Storms Ferguson. Or yeah, Ferguson, Sturgeson, something like that. Yeah, Ferguson, that's what I was going to say. There you go. You 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 yeah. can look it up. Thank yeah. you. Sorry, that's bad bad memory. Yeah, but me anyway, we did three albums for Harvest records uh and i was the main composer for the band called babe ruth Mm -hmm. how that came around was the fact that we were going to call the group shacklock and on the day of signing they said it's going to be called and i said look i can't hang with it i'm so sorry it's not (laughs) false humility here i just Mm -hmm. said we've got to think of something so we had a an american manager who said i've got a great name for a group is babe ruth i said i don't know what that is embarrassingly we didn't know because we were british i wondered so i said just stick it down I, we had a girl singer so it kind of fitted sure you know wow. so we ended up doing three records one of which the very first record went on to fairly good things you know it was modestly successful in mm-hmm. in, in our book you know so um it kind of put me on the map as a producer as well because i was producing the stuff myself because i was the mouthy one i was also the composer <laughs> yeah yeah and i'd been i'd been classically trained and, and and you know when i first did my first session of course emi owned abbey road studios mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we were grandfathered straight in there, and I looked behind me, and there's a 
six foot seven young man who just got a job as a teapot, who is Alan Parsons. Oh my gosh. Is he that tall? I'm six eight. I had no idea Alan yeah, Parsons was almost he's as tall as six, me. He's six seven. He's massive. Wow, I had yeah, no idea. No, Interesting. No dis no disrespect. No, that's but fine. Anyway, he 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 is um he is an officer. I still talk to him probably uh, over six months. Really? Ever since this time. It's been awesome. And Ken Scott's a dear oh, friend of mine. Oh, my gosh. You gosh. know, so wow. all these guys. I'm, I'm not name dropping, but it might help you. To, no, the, to get the name dropping is the history. gold. Believe me, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. I think you'll, you'll get your listeners. This so is so we'll fun. Stop, we'll, stop, we'll stop here. In 1975, I got married. I started to settled down. I didn't really want to tour anymore. I wanted to concentrate on record production because I love the recording studio. So now you can start. Okay. <laughs> I love that you just did that. You summarized every, I mean, that's a whole history right there. That's like rocks. Yeah, I tried uh, to do it as quick as, as, quick as I could. It's beautiful. <laughs> and of course, beautiful. Babe, Ruth, Babe Ruth toured. Uh, it was enigmatic here because of everything going on where we we did three three-month tours of the United States, mm -hmm. and also, you know, people like ZZ Top in Milwaukee opened for us. It oh was embarrassing, gosh. really. You know, because we we well, we got bigger in certain areas than others. Uh, uh, enigmatically, again, sorry to use the word, but, but an anomaly in Canada, it it had sold more on the East Coast, the mm. Quebec uh, province of Canada than anywhere else in the world. And we became, you know, big stars. That's there. amazing. It was insane. That's amazing. So it was good because we'd go up there and earn money and then come back down to the United States and lose it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to, okay. So yeah, let me interject here for a minute yeah. because. No, Babe please. Ruth, now you can ask your question. Okay, so good, to, good. Yeah. This is gold. Uh, now Babe Ruth, good. I mean, you guys, so a couple questions. Number one, Babe Ruth, unfortunately, and I think you just sort of alluded to that there, they aren't a band that, really gets played or even talked about very much in the States anymore. You know what I mean? No, 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 um, no. It's largely but, forgotten indeed, about. No. But yeah, yeah. Um, when I go back and I listen to, you know, a song, obviously the Mexican is sort of, if yeah. you know Babe Ruth, yeah. that may be the song that you know. But when I go back yeah. and listen to a song like, say, Wells Fargo, and I think yeah. here's, you could have, if you had wanted to, I think, made a living or a career being another John Mayall or Eric Clapton or one of those British guitar gods that, you know, people worship to this day. And it seems like yeah. you've got a hankering for production. And I can't tell if you didn't believe your own talent or if it just didn't interest you <laughs> or what you, oh, yeah. what made you decide you wanted to like leave the guitar, which you were so adept at. Yeah, this is incredible. Um, thank you for saying that. That's very well, kind. It's true. Um, yeah. Um, I, actually, it was crazy. I think the NME, I was 50th best guitar solo or something out of like Really? Remember, I think Slash was one. Not, yeah, you just, just delve a little That's bit, crazy. Right? That's but, great. But, yeah, but thank you for saying that. Sure. Um, I've been in love with it. I've, I've been in love with the guitar and I still am. I mean, I still play a lot of latin music and spanish music on the guitar you know i'm a, i'm still just attached to it mm -hmm. um i guess what i thought john at that point was that um i thought that in a way i could help others in in their vision mm -hmm. I, I i know it sounds i know it sounds kind of cheesy and corny but i i was actually helping local bands around us 
kind of get their vision just because I could go down to a rehearsal and say, hey, you know, maybe change that chord to this chord. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe this tempo isn't quite right for you. You know, let, let's try something else. So I became that guy, you know, and mm -hmm. I guess it's the, also the teacher in me, again, not not blowing my trumpet, but, sure. you know, I, I do sure. have that in me. But I didn't forsake the guitar in any way. I, mm -hmm. I, I kind of stayed with it because it's my thing, yeah. you know. But I, I felt like the, I really wanted, at, at, at that point, it was almost like it was time to hang up. I could feel a new wave coming in in mm. 75 where the others of Babe Ruth couldn't see it. And mm. I'm not saying I was the, 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 the you know, the soothsayer of, yeah. of everything, but I had younger friends who were playing music much more in the vein of say Elvis Costello, mm. the mm -hmm. Boontown Rats. Right. Uh, you know, there was a younger wave coming in where they were hanging up the Marshall stacks, mm -hmm. getting rid of the mullet, getting rid of the mullets, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, <laughs> you know, it was a new thing and I just felt kind of wrong up there. Wow. I don't know what it was. It Interesting. Was that, yeah. It, it was something that got me and I thought that this is not going to be, and of course then, Immediately in 76, there was a backlash in England. Where, sure. You know, a bunch of these bands. In fact, I remember a headline, I think it was in the Times or the Observer, that said, learn two chords, now form a band. <laughs> you know, it was, <laughs> right. it, it, was that, it was that silly. But yeah. it was true, because what yeah. we were getting was a backlash against all that technique, mm -hmm. against the, the queens of this world, against, you know, the yes and sure. all that stuff that was happening as we knew as art rock yeah. anyway that was that's kind of my answer to okay that, that, that makes that, sense but then but, but then i kind of wanted to morph definitely into more studio and helping others yeah so i did start in that time looking around for people that i could work with and now, now this took about five years because we actually moved to america for a year during the bicentennial year when i was really? married Oh. Yeah, because my, my then wife, my first wife, was from Georgia. Oh. oh wow. And then we decided to just come over here for a bit oh. and give it a shot. Then we went back in, I think it was 1977. That was the year Elvis died. And then, you know, it, it that next period, I started yeah. to find young, young talent that I could work with with the help of a couple of record companies that I knew from Good. the Babe Ruth days. So um, okay. then the eight, then we'll come to the 80s where it kind of all busted out. Yeah. But, 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 but we, can, we can talk to about more about Babe Ruth. I'm happy well, to do that. Um, you know, I think we... I, I, I do want to talk about the whole thing that went crazy that we were just naive in 1977 when the Mexican hit the Bronx yeah. the DJ world the DJ world this is totally enig enigma again if this is an anomaly and it's in, in all the hip hop history books now yes. it's one of the four, four pillars of hip hop in fact we just met uh, just this last year through my son actually or both my sons here are in music they're DJ but and mixes or whatever, but we met Breakbeat Lou, mm. who thinks I I hung the moon because really? I wrote one of, yeah we actually got together on a PA downtown Nashville. This is where I am, yeah. and he 
came and said, you know, you realize you're one of the four pillars of Cooper. And I said, I, I said, Lou, I, I don't know. You know, you have to tell me. Right. He's like doing this whole hero worship thing. And I'm going, honestly, you know, I wrote a song with a decent beat because yeah. I would do, I grew up with Stacks and Motown. I told our drummer not to come off the beat and what we now call a loop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I said, just stay on that beat as, and don't do any feels. Don't come off of it and stay on it. Because my philosophy in Babe Ruth with the composition was if they liked the beat, they might like the song. Yeah. There you go. Well, and that, I you mean, know, that song is kind of like, um, it reminds me of Apache by the, is it the Amazing Bongo Band? Another one of those songs. Yeah. That, yeah. And that's, the, that's another one. Yeah. That's the DJs one the just found and yeah, it, killed, they could break it apart yeah, into what they needed sure. and uh yeah. that was and one I, of those classic tracks amazing and ours you know you've probably done the history but ours has been sampled by sugar ray by r kelly yeah. by by you know i mean just the, the prodigy i was in london with my sons they were both skateboarders and we were in this shop in carnaby street when they were teenagers and we walk in and they're playing the mexican and i thought what's this candid camera <laughs> and, and so we, we went downstairs and there was a dj and i said who is that he said oh it's the prodigy i said it's not the prodigy it's babe ruth <laughs> i said because because I, I composed it. yeah yeah and, and i produced it and played it but you know it was it, john it was it's just one of those things and it's become the dark, you know, the yeah. break dancing anthem and sure. it's gone into the, the hip hop books and crazy, incredible craziness. You now, know. Do you, um, um, do you get a little mailbox money every time, you know, I one do. Of these people? I, okay, I've good. Got, I, I, I've got gas in the car down again because of it. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Okay. It's good. what it's what I, it's what I call. I don't know whether you have Kroger where you are, but sure. I call it Kroger Bills. Yeah, Kroger Bills. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Good. Okay, that's good. good. I want. I wondered what yeah. the history of that song was. So let me. Okay, yeah. now I want to pivot to some of your production jobs because you've worked on some things that yeah. uh, I yeah. really love yeah. and I have questions about. Thank you. Um, Thank so. You. Now you'll have to con you'll have to confirm for me because on your website it doesn't mention this, but on AllMusic.com it does. Did you produce mm -hmm. Dexie's? Uh, the Young yes. Soul Rebels album? I did not. I produced the eight tracks on the best of. Oh. It was it was right after the Young Soul Rebels album because they were one of my favorite bands. Yeah. I had had I my first sort of runaway hit was for a group called The Look. And they were they had a song called I Am the Beat and mm. out of the blue out of the blue it went top ten. Um, That's a great I'd song. I got the band. I'd, I'd worked, thank you. I'd worked the band with the band for a deal. Uh, the guy who signed Babe Ruth said release the demo because he was with Warner Brothers. And I said, no. I said, Nick, I said, honestly, I, it, when my record comes on the radio, I mean, I don't want to diminish. <laughs> you know, I, I, an, an MCA offered me a budget, so I took that. I took the band to Abbey Road. I can't what it would be in dollars, probably ten thousand dollars, and at the time, and I I produced the one song, and then went on mm. to produce an album with them. But the one song was a runaway hit. It went top ten. To answer your question about Dexys, that was the next call I got, which I couldn't believe because they, you know, I was a soul fan, and yeah, they they were they were one of my favorite bands, and uh, I think you, if you want. You want the dirt and stories. This is how that that worked. 
um, I they were assigned to EMI records at the time. Uh-huh. And I went to an audition or a meeting or whatever. There were 25 producers he'd been seeing all day, Kevin Rowland. And uh, I was about the last one. And I thought, well, man, he's got to be exhausted by now. I'm not mm-hmm. going to get this, you know. So I sat in a room with him and he played me um, the demos, three songs of which I could definitely see the potential. Mm. One was which was Plan B. Another one called Show Me, which was a big hit for them. Mm-hmm. And then another song, which was called Liars A to E, I think. I remember, John, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. But um, I listened to the, we played the, the cassette mm-hmm. in, in, in a room in EMI where that young band had taken that audition when I was 12 or 13 in the same building. Yeah. Crazy. Now I'm 30. No so, way. anyway, so I'm, I'm sitting in the cell. So I listened to the demo and I, I could see the potential, but the band did not sound anything like the band that I was a big fan of. I mean, they really? were incredible players. They were yeah. incredible players. So I thought, thoughts are going through my head really quickly. What do I do here? You know, uh-huh. he's sitting kind of, he's, he's sitting staring me down and I thought, all right, I'm going to be honest. And I kind of gave it like a, backhanded compliment i just said look kevin i said what happened mm-hmm. i said this mm-hmm. is this isn't the bad this isn't the band that i'm a fan of this Ballsy. is the very words this is the very words i used so he was silent and i thought oh that's it i'm out yeah. of here <laughs> and then he finally you know after an embarrassing silence said you're the only one that's been honest with me all day really he said well all of the others are giving me bullshit. <laughs> and sorry, I can't, I don't know. What no, I'm you can, it's fine. But he said fucking bullshit. So I said, all right, well, I said, this is no disrespect to you. I said, I can definitely hear, you know, the potential in, in the writing and the songs. They're, they're great. But he said, well, the whole band quit a week or two before and they did a pickup band to do the demos. That's what happened. So no I way. hit the nail. Oh. On the head. So he said, you get the gig. <laughs> Whoa. It's amazing so, you say that uh, because, I, I mean, yeah, you yeah. know this. A band like them and yeah. a guitar god in the, you know, in the Clapton style from the 70s art rock would not have been a marriage that you would have thought would have worked out or made any no, sense. But true, you true telling Kevin but what I, he needed to hear yeah. did the trick. And you have Show Me, to, yeah. you know, Show Me's a great song. Yeah, and I I did pick the song. You know, I said the songs are great. I said the content sounds good to me, but man, you know, I, he said we've lost the whole band except the trombone player. Wow. So I said, well, we're going to have to reform, and then we regrouped the band. And Kevin really liked what was going on. We went to Abbey Road Studios. We recorded Show Me. We recorded Plan B. We, we started to really form another record mm. then there was a politic with this band here comes more dirt mm. they walked out of emi illegally <laughs> and signed to phone signed to phonogram that signed them illegally mm. and there was a whole court wrangle I, I of course was right in the middle of this because i was the producer on hand you i know? wondered yeah so but we we got through eight tracks and they did use those eight tracks on what we had in England, but I don't know whether it came out here. 
but it was called the best of Dexys and they yeah. can't run it. I've seen it over there. In fact, I have, I used to have, I don't right. know if I still do. I had a right. copy of that on CD. And um, that that was going to be my question. If you worked on these songs in between Young Soul Rebels and Two Rye, where why did why did you not do well, Two Rye? Right. Well, he did in fact come back to me on that. Hmm. He 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 came, but you've got to remember what's going on with me here in the middle is they've gone to Phonogram and Phonogram have given them you know other ideas for producers. Now, while this is going on, I'm producing other bands like the Joe Boxes. That's going to be my the next Alar- one. Yeah, uh, both the, of those. The, the, Alar- the Alarm. Yeah. Okay, so hold the phone, hold the phone a second. Yep. So, so I produce, I met, um, I was approached from the Alarm and Joe Boxes. I had a friend in RCA Records who said, I've got the band that you should absolutely do. It's a soul band, mm-hmm. and you need to be doing this. And this was after Dexys, right happening after Dexys. Uh, so I met the Joe Boxers band. I did a full album with them, and it was yeah. a very fast runaway. It went very quickly. They were on the front page of The Enemy because mm-hmm. they were very much a live band. The Enemy were very pro-live live performance bands and what have been and and then when we got to um uh, we, we finished that record and they got the first single out in november by february it was number two mm-hmm. just got lucky right which, which is one of the greatest number, songs ever and i gotta tell number, you number six number six boxer beat went to oh two. boxer beat went to two okay here's 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 a great story let me tell you one thing real quick, interject. I had yeah. Dig Wayne yeah. on here. I love I love the Joe Boxers. Please, and Dig told me to tell love. you he told me to tell you hello. Yeah, and please give him my love back. I will. He's fantastic. He yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. He it was a, his lyrics were second to none. Absolute yeah. and so much fun. So much fun. And he was the one who brought me a white label of Africa Bombata sampling the Mexican. Really? No way. Yeah, he, he brought me, he went to New York while we were recording the, the Boxers record. He came back and he said, check that out. And I said, that's me. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> he said, he said, also it's triple platinum in the United States. No anyway, way. that's another story. Good. So Dig was, that band were awesome. They were yeah. really good. It was a, all a very good feeling. Uh, they were great writers, John. They were mm. great writers. And, and of course, it was that soul thing again. It was me yeah. reliving my youth, you know, trying Amazing. to form the Stax bands and doing all that stuff. Well, we got success, but here's, here's the dirt story. They mm. were managed by a young man called Bernard Rhodes. Oh, I sure, the Clash. Say. Yeah. Right. Yep. Okay, so Bernie, Bernie, as we knew him, was mm. Malcolm McLaren's friend and all the history you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway... He was on tour with a clash in all over Europe, and I think they'd gone to Japan or something. And he had kind of neglected boxes while we were making the record mm-hmm. and had not realized the, the, the runaway success they had. So the record company called me and said, you're going to get a call from Bernie to tell you to do a remix. He said he does this, they, he does this with every producer. And I said, "How did who taught him that big word with two syllables remix?" And, he, and I, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
it, anyway, long story short, Bernie, of course, I got the call. And, and this is the greatest place to be in as a producer. He said, I, Alan, I want a remix. And I said, well, Bernie, I said, I'm sorry, man. I said, I can't really see anything wrong with the record because it's sitting at number two right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't and know that, what you that, want a remix that's, for. That's that's a great position to be in, yeah. you know, as a producer going, look, you know, we did good, man. You know, <laughs> right, just right. Give, give us a give us a break here, you know. Yeah. So, oh, I did, I did, I haven't seen the chart this week. I said, no. I said, it's, it's obviously. Yeah. And anyway, fine. so that was, that, that was a fun story. No disrespect to, to Bernard Rhodes, you know, he, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's just the way he was and sure. we deal with this stuff. So that was the boxer okay. story. And so I, the honestly, alarm. I still have it. It broke. All right, good. So <laughs> I'm um, sorry if I keep cutting the, you off. I just, I want to make the, sure no, I the drop alarm, all these names. The alarm, the alarm was, another approach they approached me uh, they also approached several producers uh they had done an ep with a fabulous mm-hmm. producer called mick glossop mm-hmm. which was called the stand yep and i uh became a bit of a fan of the band when uh, irs records which was miles copeland who managed the police yep there was miles and his brother stuart of course was in the police yep uh, you know, as the drummer. So uh, I've got a great story about them a bit later. I've got yeah. a really good story from, yeah, good. from Roger Daltrey. Good. But um, so back to the alarm. So we were all invited to a gig in in the Caledonian in King's Cross in London. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we were just pinned to the wall. And I could see all these, there was Bob Carter. There was, I was standing next to Steve Lillywhite. Oh, and, you know, it was, it, I love it, it him. Was a t- yeah, I do too. So he's, he's a dear friend. So he, he, you know, we're all standing there, you know, and, and just in awe of this band suddenly singing two or three song, two or three words of their song. And then the crowd finishing it, yeah. this is kind of before they'd really mm-hmm. <laughs> taken off. There was a massive street following. So anyway, I met with the band, long story short, we got on really well. Mike Peters and I kind of locked because of certain, you know, spiritual beliefs and whatever. Mm -hmm. So, so Mike said, we want you to do the record. And I said, well, you're going to have to get a bass player. Here's a great story. Oh, we don't want a bass player. I said, well, look, there's, there's three good, there's three acoustic guitars held together by gaffer tape. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Mike, I said, you're the singer. And Dave's a better guitar player than Eddie. So Eddie's the bass player. So the, immediately it was the naysayer. Oh, I, I can't do it. I can't play. Mm-hmm. But I said, oh, look, I'll ghost the bass for the whole album. So I played the bass on that whole declaration. Album. You did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. This is this is, this is is public. You can publish it. Publish that, that is great. So let me tell you. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I also played the Ebos. On where were you hiding when the storm broke? Really? I uh, yeah, and I play, I I played a lot of the stuff. It, just the stuff they couldn't pull off, you know, because no, yeah. no disrespect, right? You know, but those these were the days when you kind of ghosted, and everybody said, "Don't tell anybody," because you know you, we're going to look bad. And I said, right, "Whatever you want to do," I said, "I'm just trying to make the record better." Uh huh. That so, um, so Eddie, let me let me tell Eddie, you a little something. Yeah, yeah Eddie McDonald. I interviewed yeah. him a few months ago. Yeah. And he yeah, didn't mention any of this, by the way. No, no, no. I've, I've got, I've got more dirt than anyone. So, um, and and that that 
I, I, I'm very dear friends with Mike still. He came uh-huh. through Nashville about three weeks ago. Yeah. I saw them and spent time with them. And he said, look, just tell the truth in the interviews. He said, "Tell the truth. I want you to just tell the truth." He said, oh there's, "There's no shame. There's no shame in this anymore." And I said, "Look, you know, it doesn't matter that I played the bass. You know, Eddie took it over. You were the writers. It was all good, sure. and everything's good in the hood." They went on then to uh, Mike Howlett mm-hmm. after me because I moved on to Meatloaf. Yeah. Well, now, okay. Before we get to Meatloaf, let me cut. Let me okay. ask you one more th- thing because yeah. no, please, Eddie- please. I love Eddie and I love the alarm and I love Mike Peters yeah. a lot. And when that, when our episode with Eddie came out a few, it was I think June, May or June, uh, the right. fans really grabbed a hold of it and, and it caused yeah. kind of a stir. Now, can yeah. we, at least Eddie is an incredible writer. I didn't know that he didn't play bass on that album, but did he at least play bass on subsequent albums after that? Yes, yes, I believe so. Okay. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, okay. yeah. He would because of the time they were all just thrashing around acoustic yeah. guitars when I found them. Okay, and really, you know, Dave Sharp had some technique. He could pull. So he eventually thought he was Stevie Ray Vaughan when he right. woke up, but he wasn't. But you know, no disrespect, but he he got the hat, the feather, and all stuff. But yeah. that didn't help. But yeah. anyway, so Eddie, I. I sat him down. It was actually like I told you, John. I said, look, mm-hmm. Mike's the singer. He's to play rhythm. Dave, you're a better guitar player than Eddie. So Eddie, you're the bass player. Yeah. And of course, there was a big backlash. Eddie was always one of those who would be always backlashing against me. Oh, man. He was to- totally against all the horns on 68 Guns. And mm-hmm. I was the, that was my, all my fault. He was, he was against the B3 on the, yeah, everything. Anyway, this is, how you get through the teething, you know, of, of bands and producers and whatever it came around to, to me, it was a dignified sound yeah. and it made a hit. It made a hit. It's luckily, a great album. John, luckily, thank you. Luckily it wasn't, you know, you know, it, it was almost really their first record. Yeah. It was, right. But, and, and you know, there's always a great feeling around the first record, and of course, it's always the best songs that come out. Yeah. You know, the second album is the hardest album because right. it's that sophomore, the sophomore blues. You know? Right. So, it's funny. He way. when I interviewed him, he he didn't say your name or anything like that, but he expressed right. that he liked the songs on that first album, but he didn't love the way they were recorded or produced yeah. on that album. And now right. I'm beginning to understand why he might feel that way. Yeah, it, they took a lot of musically shaping mm-hmm. and, and really, you know, a lot of it was, and again, it's, it's the bane of a producer's life when you've got such a phenomenal following live to then get it to record yeah. and have it still having that edge and the stuff they have, but also the record company on the other side of the coin going, well, what do you want to hit? Right. You know, right. So I'm in, you know, as this is how you, you know, you, the record, a record producer, you spin plates, you become, you become a tap dancer. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, keep, keeping everyone happy and spinning plates. And that's what, what was going on there. Yeah. You know, and, and again, Eddie was, you know, not the easiest. <laughs> Interesting. Boy, okay. Yeah, yeah. But Mike Mike and I always saw eye to eye 
somehow. Uh, and Nigel was was a really kind of almost like a Ringo. He was a you know a really yeah. good solid rock drummer and and really pulled it off and yeah. you know worked worked with it in in ways. And it's never easy when you're coming into a, a situation like they were children when like I was when we played together. They were they had a band called the Toilets. Uh-huh, right. The toilets. And, and they, they, you know, they were trying to do that punk thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember that night. I mean, they came off wet through when we went to because people spitting. Oh, right. This mm-hmm. is this is pretty gross. This was a, a dreadful yeah, the gobbing. Kind of compliment. Right. Yeah, the, the gobbing of the punk. Oh, it was, it was dreadful. It was terrible, yeah. And it, it, it yeah, anyway, so. Okay. Bless. Wow, and, the alarm. And, okay. Un- unhygienic. <laughs> yeah, right. No kidding. <laughs> what we're growing up. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Okay. So, so well, no, this is great. I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's, this is really eye opening um, because yeah. it, it, so many things sort of came to light in our, in my interview with Eddie. And yeah. this is saying, this is sort of shedding a different light on a lot of the things that yeah. I'm not saying. Yeah. I love Eddie and I love the band and I'm not pitting yeah, anyone against yeah. each other but this is a different perspective so you mentioned well, meatloaf let's talk about meatloaf how did that yeah. happen well, i love uh, meatloaf 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 heard the alarm uh, really really and liked and liked the alarm he, he 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 was kind of yeah i could have really you know when i got the call he called me at home <laughs> you know and no record company no manager he uh. just got my number Alan, this is somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And that's what he said. And, oh my God. and I said, who, who is, who is this really? Uh-huh. And he, he said, this is uh, that's pretty me. And he said, I, I like what you do. Would you come in and have a chat? He said, I'm in London. I'm, you know, from, he was from Connecticut, mm-hmm. you know, here. And, uh, he'd come to London and actually why he'd come to London was that he was in so much debt with Cleveland international. Mm-hmm. He was millions of dollars in debt. Yeah. So he signed a deal with Arista, Arista, mm-hmm. to get himself out of that debt. I've heard that, and that's where the this Bad is, Attitude album comes from, right? That you worked on. This is where the yeah the whole thing came out. So here's here's the dirt on this one. I'm going to give you everything. Okay. So yeah, this is this is good though, John, and it and it came out well. Good. Um, I, I I'm I'm proud of it. You know, in in, yeah. in lots of ways. Yeah. So. Here's here's what what happened here, and I'm going to name names and shame shames. Okay. So, uh, and print what you will, or say what you will. Okay. But I'm gonna, I'm going to tell you what what I think is the truth. So, and I would say it if he was sitting with me. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to okay. talk as I'm going to talk as if he's sitting with me. Good. So, we came. I came to London and. He said, I really like what you're doing with the alarm. He said, I think it's vibey. He said, I want to get that kind of feel. He said, of course, I don't want to lose my roots. And I said, so I said, what about material? So he said, well, you know, we can go to the publishers. And I said, please don't do that. I mm-hmm. said, let's do, let's do this. Let me commission the songs for you. Um, and I said, let me go to writers I know and writers you may know. Mm-hmm. And let's give them the vibe of the record, and let's ask them to write a specific song for the record, not guaranteeing any way that they will get on the record, mm-hmm. but certainly honoring you and them 
in that process. Mm-hmm. So I went to all the writers, you know, that I knew that were, you know, people that I thought were worthy of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we sifted it out. We did not eventually, eventually he, he did do a cry for help for the publishers on the ninth for it. I don't know why he did it. He went kind of crazy one mm-hmm. day and called everyone. And then of course we had to listen to a, you know, a thousand bad songs. Right. <laughs> you know, so that that's right. the bane of a life when that's what I didn't want to do. So I did did really politely advise him not to do mm. it. Eventually he panicked at the end because we needed one. And we ended up doing a Jim Steinman song which was that surfs out there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all all that to say, when I the very next call after Meatloaf called me and asked me to meet him was Steve Lillywhite. Oh my gosh. And and I will I will use these his his vernacular okay mm-hmm. he said i hate this motherfucker you do it <laughs> oh, he said that about meatloaf yeah oh. so so i said all right i said i don't have my u2 yet <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> you know so yeah, yeah. i said i said i said okay i said you got it I, he said i sat with him he said i can't stand him i, I sat in a room with him well, when I went down, Meatloaf and I actually got on phenomenal. We got on like we say in England, the house on fire. You know, it was just really good. And so we decided to start the process of making the record. We, I said, let's do the production in your home in Stamford. Mm-hmm. So I went to his house for three weeks. Mm. Uh, and down the street was Diana Ross and Diana... Dinah's daughter and Meatloaf's daughter were friends. We'd see them. You know, this was all happening. Is this Diana's Ross Tracy that's now the famous actress? Uh, The Diana Ross of the Supremes. Yeah, I know. her. She has a daughter named Tracy Ellis Ross, who's now a famous actress on a show called Blackish. Yeah, ah, okay. I'm I'm not with that one. Her her daughter's name was Forrest. Okay, the other one. Okay. Got it, it might have been the other one. Yeah, okay. the younger. I don't know. I'm not quite sure. Just the, curious. This, but mm-hmm. they, they were, yeah, they were mm-hmm. friends, and they lived in Stamford, about three doors down from each other. <laughs> That's wild. So, so I was there, and then I had approached my friend John Parr. That was going to be us. my next question. I love John. Right, I had him on right. here too. Yeah, yeah. Well, John is an officer and gentleman. He's, yeah. he's a really good man yeah. and a fabulous voice and a great writer. Love him. So he he had already got at that point Saint Elmo's fire. Mm-hmm. He was working on it at that mm-hmm. point. Right. Uh, actually, he hadn't got he hadn't got Saint Elmo's fire. Yeah, naughty, naughty. The I think at that point, not yet. Naughty, naughty had, yeah. and he was getting to Saint Elmo's fire, which where you know, of course, that ruled, you know, yeah. and he he got he got and quite deservedly so he got the accolade. Yeah. Started working with the you know the wealthy in L.A. But um, so. John came with me. I said, let's bring John mm. in. I said, let's just, just get him on the pre. I said, if, I think he's got a good vibe. I think he's got some great ideas. So John just wrote a lot of the record, yeah. so, which was good. Now, there was a keyboardist called Paul Jacobs. Have mm-hmm. you interviewed him? No, but I've seen the name, and I know he's got credits right. on this album. And, and he has, he had a, I believe she was his wife. Her name was Sarah Durkee, D-U-R-K-E-E, I believe. Mm-hmm. 
this is stretching me on the names now because I'm not. Oh, looking, you've got I'm it. I'm looking. I'm looking at I'm, it. So yes, you've got I, the names I, right. I'm, I'm on. I'm on the phone, not looking at the internet. I'm just talking <laughs> to you, John. I've got it right so, here. Good. Okay. So Sarah was incredibly talented with lyrics. Mm-hmm. She was really far above even this level. I felt she was every bit, you know, a, a Paul Simon, you know, almost. Mm. Wow, you know, if you could even if you could even get that, but I felt she really had a, a real talent for the, for the lyrics mm-hmm. and, and and a real talent for keying in to what we needed. Paul had played with Meatloaf's band for eight years live, or played with Meatloaf for about that long. I think mm. he was on Bat. I think yep. he was playing in the live live band on Bat. Don't, but Paul was extremely forceful he was a very good piano player a very good musician paul and i really got on very well in the early stages of the record but i hadn't realized that paul felt like he should have been the producer of that record uh okay so Mm. there was an under there was an undercurrent with paul and i so he he was kind of against me from the start i didn't realize that he was a great he was one of those ones that could you know have you believe in yeah so um sarah was great she was phenomenal and they came to the house and we we started to build the record with john and you know there was there was you know a lot of respect going on at that time and, and of course this was a every as every record i think he just had um, Dead Ringer. Yeah, I think Dead Ringer was the one before this one. So that was again pretty successful. The one right before um, it was actually um, Midnight was and Lost and not, Found. It was okay. Uh, gotcha, Dead Ringer, gotcha, then Lost the, and Found, then Bad Attitude. Right. Sorry. Yes. That's no, right. it's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So good. Sorry. Green matters going. I'm not. That's all right. <laughs> so <laughs> so right. so we ha- so we had. You know, started to build and really excited. Really, everybody, the vibe was high, it was hot. We were just excited about the songs. We were honing the songs down together. Uh, you know, and then we, our plan was to bring the whole band to England, which we did do. He mm-hmm. wanted to do his record in England because he'd signed through his record company in England. So we got the pre production, we got the band in the studio. The band worked. Wells Kelly on drums, mm. uh, who was in a band called um, uh, Orleans. They did oh, a song sure. called Still, Still the One. <laughs> I've had him them right. on he, here too. Yeah. He was he was actually a, a very good singer as well, Wells Kelly. Mm. And there's a, there's, a, there's a tragic story coming. So uh, John Siegler was the bassist. He had played with early Hall & Oates. He mm-hmm. was a New Yorker phenomenal bass player. He played on the private eyes times of Hall and Oates. Oh, goodness. Um, and then there was uh, Bob Kulik. Oh, wow. Who Guitar who our, God. Our, our, our guitarist, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He, he was a phenomenal, really strong, you know, very yeah. authoritative, fabulous player. Nice guy, very nice guy. Good. And Paul. 
Jacobs. Mm-hmm. So that was the main kind of nucleus of that four that we were going to cut the tracks with. Um, I had suggested that um, we use some string arrangements. Uh, he said, well, do you want to do it? Or just pull? And I said, no, I really think the right person for this is, is my dear friend, Paul Buckmaster. Mm-hmm. God bless. Mm-hmm. And he said, would he do it? And I said, well, I'll phone him and ask him. <laughs> and then I, I called. Paul was at the Royal Academy of Music with me. Uh, he was just leaving as I was joining. So he was four years out. I was, I was a freshman. He was a senior coming at just graduating. Mm-hmm. So I knew him through a, another dear friend who was Peter Robinson, who we had missed out that little part of the life. That was the end of the seventies. Peter Robinson played keyboards for Chris Farlow oh. during the bon- during the Bonham years. Okay. Peter Robinson ended up ended up with a group called Quatermass. Hmm. Quatermass were on Harvest. Okay. It was Johnny Gustafson, Mick Underwood, and Peter Robinson. So back to the. The, the, the meatloaf, sorry, I lost lost the plot. So I went and saw Paul. He said, oh, I'd love to do it. He said, yeah. He said, how is he? I said, well, he's, he's very strong. He's very forthright. And I said, I'll come down and work work out what we need with you and, and you know, give you a start on the score. And we'll, we'll, we'll start the score and come in. So everyone was very vibed up about that. We had you know, 40 string players in Marcus and it was, it was pretty great. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a big, arg- big argument with the, with the, this point. Meatloaf was not only no disrespect, but in his life, his life was kind of going in and out of mm. sort of badness and worse, yeah. uh, okay. you know, because of the, the bankruptcy and the stuff going on with Cleveland international, he was not in a good place. So he was starting to go on to the drink and drugs. Oh boy. He was, he was doing a lot of that during the sessions as well. So that really wasn't helping as the sessions went along. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And at this time, Paul had got his ear and he was knifing me. They were all staying in a house in Cavendish Avenue, right opposite Paul McCartney's house, oh, wow. which is, Right, right near Abbey Road, because mm-hmm. we wanted to be near Abbey Road Studios so that we could just, and because we eventually moved everything from Marcus cutting the tracks to Abbey Road. So by this time, pretty much Meatloaf, this is about three months into the record. Now, a tragedy happened on this record. Um, one night, the band went out to a club, a very highbrow gambling there was a lot of stars there one night in fact I just went for about an hour I think we mm-hmm. went off the studio and Wells Kelly God bless was 30 years old with two three children overdosed oh. and died oh man this is what happened like okay. halfway through the record so this pretty much put a very black yeah. shadow over it over everything you Rough. know and yeah. then of course everybody, everybody was 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 going crazy, you know, because this mm-hmm. tragedy had happened during sure. the album. Oh man! So uh, yeah, it was very one of those unfortunate things, and we we didn't. I didn't actually mention about. Sorry, jumping around. John Glasscock, who was my dearest friend, mm-hmm. who played with Carl, 
who also overdosed. Oh, that's he right. Was he, he was 28. Hmm. He was 28. So oh, that man. was 1979. Yeah, sorry to bring that bring it down a bit but it, yeah. you know this is this is in, this is interviews yeah know, well and this is the rock and roll yeah. world i mean it happens you know it was there was a lot flowing. of money going on there's a lot of money going on with john you know he was getting very he was well paid on tall you know of mm -hmm. course you know and did did some classic stuff with him um but anyway so back to meatloaf uh, so wells you know overdosed they found him pretty much the a cab had brought him home mm. And they found him in the morning when they all woke up just over the gate of the house. Oh, like rough. hanging. Oh my gosh. So that that was, you know, absolute tragedy. Wow. Um, and of course that that put a very big black mark over the whole record at sure. that point. Yeah. So, you know, this wasn't helping me in any way. So I kind of rallied the troops and said, Let's soldier on through. I said we ought to carry on with it if you're all good with it. Mm-hmm. Just out of respect for Wells, I said he would, he probably would have wanted that, and his family yeah. would have wanted that. You know, I said, you know, we've got two choices: we hang it up, or we we, we just sold. It. And they all said we'll soldier on. Good. So we ended up finishing. Now Meatloaf and I fell out big time, yeah. big big time. We started shouting matches, and he was threatening me every day, absolutely physically threatening threatening. In fact, at one point, my management said, do you want a bodyguard? I said, if I get a bodyguard really? in the studio, it's all over. I said, this is crazy. I'm not a tall man like you. I'm about, <laughs> five, foot, I'm, I'm about five foot six when, okay. I, when I stand up tall. When I stand up tall. <laughs> okay. So, so, so I, I, I just had to say to Meatloaf, I said, just look at this dynamic. Yeah. I said, if you hit me, I'm going to hit the floor. And I said, what does that prove? I right. literally said that to him. You can quote that if you want. You know, and, 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 and I said, that's not proving anything. Now, you just need to get in there and be a professional and do your gig. You know, wow. I, knew, I, I, knew, I knew this was either going to end up with me being knocked out on the studio floor. The, the engineers were absolutely terrified of him. Uh, we had a, 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 and I'll mention the names, Femi Gia, F-E-M-I, J-I-Y-A worked for Prince for 20 years. Got Whoa. This. Wow. He was, uh, he was up in Minneapolis. He did Batman. He went all through those years. Um, and he's now in LA doing Stevie Wonder. Oh my God. But gosh. he was, a, he was, he was an Englishman, black Englishman. He was from the islands, from the Jamaican islands. Uh -huh. So he'd come, he'd come to England. He was a phenomenal engineer. Very, very well respected. And then, uh, we had, uh, both he and the, 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 the tape operators were terrified of Meatloaf. Wow. Um, you know, it's it, interesting. Can I interject one thing about this? It's, yes, of course. Uh, just, to, just to connect some dots. It, uh, yeah. I don't know if these things are connected or not, but when you tell me this, yeah. my mind goes yeah. back to about 10 years ago, famously on The yeah. Celebrity Apprentice. I'm not getting political about Trump, but he was on that show. And he had this yeah. famous meltdown with uh, Gary Busey yeah. on that show. And it gets, you know, okay. the clip's been seen a million times. And it's, he comes yeah. off like this very sort of humble, uh, emotional, uh, sweetheart, little puppy dog of a man, but has these, mm. this switch flips and he has a temper that is just volcanic. Yeah. You can't believe that yeah. you've seen it. And he's, that one moment is all, all most, regular people have to go off of if they've seen it right. and millions right. have. Uh, 
But you saying this, it kind of shines a light on the duality of what must be going on inside of Meatloaf on a regular basis. Right. One side, he's this yeah. Texas cowboy, mm -hmm. chubby, you know, humble yeah. kid. And on the other side, he's this, you know, tyrannical, angry rock yeah. star that can't, yeah. you know, get his life in order. Yeah, he had also, John, just at this point, and this is quotable, um, had done about 18 months of straight touring before we hit the album. Oh. So his voice was pretty shot. Well, have you heard him lately? And it's he, gone. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't hit yeah. the notes. Yeah. When, when, and of course, this, this is the days before Melodyne, before mm. Pro Tools, before, you know, Auto-Tune. If I'd have had that, man, I could have ruled the world. Okay. But, it, you know, we had to get it right, and we were on tape back in those days also, you know. So yeah. I, that's about as far as I, I okay. really want to go. I, that's, I, fine. Now, that's fine. We, we, absolutely, we absolutely fell out. In a shouting match in Abbey Road, and I said to him, and I'll, I'll quote his book as well because I've seen it in his book. Um, what the the last straw was him ju just uh, he and I just having a real shout down match in Abbey Road, and I said, "Look, it's time to quit." I, hmm. said, I am not quitting. You're going to have to fire me. Mm -hmm. So he said, "You're fired." I said, "That's fine. I get paid." Mm -hmm. Wow. So I I walked on. And they, I had done all the recordings at that point, by the way. We pretty much finished everything. Mm -hmm. And then they sent the record to a guy called Mac, who mixed mm -hmm. Queen back in the day. They sent it yep. to Switzerland. And Mac mixed that attitude and did a great a great job. My dear friend, Paul Buckmaster, was in, involved in that record. I was so thrilled that we could work together. Wow. Um, and Paul was a dear friend and an officer and a gentleman mm. and was a great man. And we lost him last year, as you yeah. probably know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, he was, he did all those Elton John records yeah. and just made, I don't think they would have been the same <clears throat> without that. Yeah. He's, he's kind of a legend with the, so, the arranging that he brings to certain artists. It's, yeah. Uh, oh, go down in history. Oh, yeah. and, and he was a phenomenal cellist. Oh really? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it, that wow. was that was his that was his, his instrument. Wow. He, you know, he was he was a dear friend, and you know, he it, it was. Uh, here's a tidbit: he was Miles Davis's roommate. What? Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my just gosh. for you. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, that crazy. That's <laughs> that is crazy. crazy. And, wow. And he was he was a scholar of music like you wouldn't believe. I mean, uh -huh. he studied Eastern music. He studied. You know, he studied quarter tones. He studied, you know, all that incredible stuff. Wow. He, he was way, way ahead of most of us. Yeah, you know, yeah. most of us mere, mere mortals on the ground. Wow. Um, anyway, okay. of course, Meat, Meatloaf, they released Modern Girl as the, the lead single, and mm -hmm. Bad Attitude came out. Now, during that album, I'm going to go on. You're probably going to ask me. That's okay. Um, I hope you are. I hope yeah. you are. I'm during good. that album... Bad Attitude was written by Paul Jacobs and Sarah Durkee. And mm -hmm. Meatloaf said to me, I want to do it. I want it to be a duet with another male singer. I had a feeling this is where you were going. Yep. Right. Okay. So I said, I said, well, I said that I'll throw some names at you. And I think the ones who can really handle it, you know, are people like maybe Robert Turner, maybe Paul Rogers, maybe Steve Winwood. And he, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, what about Roger? And he said, Roger who? I said, Roger Daltrey. And he said, do you think he'd do it? Mm -hmm. So, guess 
what happened. <laughs> Babe Ruth, by the way, in 1974, opened for the Who four nights in London. Whoa! <laughs> so I, we got to know the Who quite yeah, well. Yeah. During, after that period in the 80s, I had reconnected with their management, who was Bill Curbishley, who managed his Led Zeppelin, who managed Judas Priest. And Bill had managed a group called the Steve Gibbons Band that mm. I actually did do a record with, mm-hmm. which was maybe the most notable member was Trevor Burton, who was from the mm. movie. Got it. Um, okay. And, and, and that. Anyway, we'll move on. Sorry, that's another kind of crazy. That's no, okay. I saw um, that on your resume, but I didn't know anything about it, so I didn't... Uh, right, right, yeah. right. So <clears throat> what, <clears throat> what happened was um, I called Roger's management, Bill, because I knew them, and said, do you think Roger, he said, well, here's his number, call him. So I, <laughs> I phoned Roger's house and his wife answered and she said, oh, hold on a minute, he's here, you know, and I said, great. And I said, well, listen, I said, I'm the producer of Meatloaf, I'm Alan Shacklock, and I said, we, we'd like to invite you to come sing a duet if you'd consider that. And he said, well, send me a cassette in the old days, you know. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I, I sent him a cassette and he said, I'll listen to it. This was Friday, I think. He said, if I listen to it, I'll come up Monday and do the vocals. So that's exactly what happened. Um, He came to Abbey Road and the two of them, uh, you know, sang together pretty much live in the studio. Wow. That's incredible. And that's what led to you doing (laughs) Under the Raging Moon? Right. And another one called Can't. I did his second solo. I was going to, I like both those albums a lot. And I was going to ask you about details on both. Thank you. We'll we'll talk about those. Yeah. Um, Let me, yeah. So when Roger got there, he felt the vibe, Hmm. you know, immediately because he's very sensitive. And he came up to me and goes, what what the fuck's going on? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's not been an easy ride. I said, we've had the drummer, you know, at this point, you know, Donnelly, you know, we had to give him the whole, and yeah. he said, oh, okay, I, I got it. So <clears throat> so then uh, we got chatting that night, just like literally that night. And I said, don't you make solo records anymore? He said, I oh, know, we took the last one to the Bahamas or somewhere. We spent £350,000 oh. <laughs> on the record, which is, I don't know, $600,000 during, during those days, a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. He said, they, you know, they took the whole band and their wives and it didn't do very well. So and and it was actually a pretty good record, mm-hmm. but um, he was signed to Virgin in, in England, interestingly, and then Atlantic in the States, Roger. So actually, it was Doug Morris who then got back to me, who now is the CEO of Sony, mm-hmm. and then <clears throat> Roger got back to me and I, I and we just got I, and I said well, if you ever want to try something just call me you know mm-hmm. I was just kind of shooting the booth well he called me that next week and he said let's do it I want to do a celebration oh, no <clears throat> you you hit the ground and I said let me hit the ground and commission the songs just like I did with Meatloaf mm-hmm. you know and I said mm-hmm. let, let me do that I'll go to these writers I'll go to every different writer and I you know because went back to John Park yep he's on know, there like, yep he, he wrote Under Raging Moon, which was, of course, a tribute to Keith Moon. Yep. And this is a great, this is a great story. I'll, I'll go into this. So we were making, uh, I formed my band to, you know, cut the tracks during Under Raging Moon. The band with John Siegler again, who's my dear friend. 
Um, Mark Brzezicki. Now, here's, uh-huh. my, here's another one of my best friends. I've he interviewed him too, with, by the way. You keep naming all these right. people and they've all been on this show. He's fantastic. He's yes, one he of is. my best friends. He, he's got a place in Nashville now. So yeah, his girlfriend lives there. Good. <clears throat> his, I love him. Now his wife. Oh, now good. Wife. Okay. When I talked to him, yeah, they weren't yeah. married. Okay. Neoja. Yeah, Neoja. Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> I say hi to. Please but, do. Um, I love him. Yeah, of course. This is a great story, though. This is going to float your boat with yeah. more names. <laughs> so um, uh, we decided to, you know, we put the album together. Robbie McIntosh was my main guitar player. Robbie had been probably notably mostly with the Pretenders. Mm-hmm. And then for Paul McCartney for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And now he's the guy who plays on the end with John Mayer. Oh, right. Okay. On the left-hand side, the guy with the gray hair, he's, he's, and he's a fabulous player. Yeah. <clears throat> he's a great, really great player. He's played with other people. And I'm sure you can check the history, but yeah. um, they're, the, they're the notable ones. John, of course, played with who he played with. And Mark was dear, my my choice of drummer together with Roger. Because Mark was also playing with Pete's solo stuff, Pete mm-hmm. Townsend's solo stuff. Mm-hmm. So Roger said, I, I really want... Mark to be the drummer and I said so do I I mean my gosh this kid is incredible he's 25 or something when he when he did this mm-hmm. so um, when we got to Under a Raging Moon I said well Mark I said it's a tribute to Keith Moon I said you've got to do a drum solo so he said oh, I'm not sure and I said well what about 16 bars and he said okay he said I've got an idea we were in Rack Studios and the Pretenders were in the other room we were in one room. The pretenders were in another room in rack. Mm-hmm. And he, Mark said, why don't you ask Martin? Martin's got his drums set up in the other room. Right. So there was no management. There was no record company involved. We just went over to the other studio. Mark said, Martin, this is Alan. Alan, this is Martin. And I said, Martin, do you want to play? He said, absolutely. Take the tape off the reel. Bring it here and I'll do you a solo. <clears throat> so I did that. So that was my second solo. There were no seven way. drummers on Seven drummers on this. So they both said, why don't you call Stuart? And I said, Stuart who? And they said, Stuart Copeland. I said, you have to be kidding. So old school phone handed to me, Alan, this is Stuart. Stuart, this is Alan. And I said, do you want to play? He said, oh, yeah, man. He said, absolutely. Come down to my garage. And he said, I've got my drum set up. Bring your tape down. I've got a tape machine. I do solos. So I did that. And then then the three of them said, call Cozy Powell. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I called Cozy and Cozy came in to rack and played a solo. And then, of course, we had to call Zach Starkey, who was Ringo's son, who who at the time was 20 years old, 20 years old. And he played. And I, I, God bless, I thought, I'm going to call Carl Palmer. I played with Carl when I was 17, and he remembered. And no I way. said, Carl, I'm going, to, I'm going to invite you. We're going to give you the red carpet. And the next call I got was from Queen's office saying, Roger wants to play on, Roger Taylor wants to play on his <laughs> Incredible. <clears throat> incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. And here's another, great, here's another great story to add to this to you, which is, which is probably more in your age group, Ali. Uh-huh. Um, uh, anyway, that happened. And of course it was, you know, the, in order, you'll, you'll see it on the record. They all played a solo. Uh, 
Now, did they all play solos on different songs, or is there a song where they're all... No, the same, the same song. On Under the Ra- follow, Under a Raging Moon, right? Yeah, they all That's what followed I thought. each other. Okay. Yeah, they all... If you look... Sorry, if I can't remember the order. But I think it was it was Martin, it was... Uh, it was uh, Roger Taylor, I think, and then Carl Palmer, then Zach, then uh, Stuart, then Mark. Played the last solo. There were seven on it. Hmm. <clears throat> so they were the they, they, uh, Roger. They were all so great. They all did it for nothing. Hmm. I don't mind saying. <laughs> they weren't paid. I them. think we paid Zach. I think we paid Zach in Foster's Lager. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we paid him. We paid him. We paid him. He was well in the footsteps of his father. So <clears throat> no disrespect. Hmm. But um, anyway, he. You know, it was just a fantastic vibe. Anyway, what I'm going to tell you now is that Mark's best friend, Mark Rizicki's best friend, or one of his dear friends, is Taylor Hawkins, the drummer in the Foo Fighters. Really? Oh my God. So Taylor called Mark and said, I want to do a modern version of Under a Raging Moon. He said, it's my favorite record. Oh my God. So they ended up doing it with Dave Grohl on it and a and, and it's under another name, John, and I'll get you the name. Please do. Um, I don't, it's a metal record that Taylor kind of drove. Is it Probot? That, it, Does that sound familiar? It could be, but yes, could be. But Mark, okay. he called Mark in the middle of, in the middle of the, when he was driving down the road in England and he said, where are you? He said, get into a studio now. I want you to do this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> This is so, so this beautiful. Is, this, All this just, oh, you yeah. know, everyone uh, that I love so, working together. This is amazing. Yeah, it's such a fabulous tribute to, to, to what we did, you know, because yeah. I was very honored. I, I, I mean, I got in modern, modern drama. I, yeah. I was an interview with Yeah, me. that's incredible. And I said, I'm no, I'm no drummer, but right. I said, I'll tell you how I'm, you know, where I put the microphones and how it happened. And it was, it was just a great, uh, it was a great spirit Good. about it because of Keith. Yeah. You know, Keith had given Keith had given Zach his first drum kit and pedal. And, no way, no way. You know, because he was around. He was around, though. You know, they were all friends back in the day. Sure. You know, sure. So and, let me uh, ask you a question about that because uh, after yeah. the fire was a pretty big hit, and that is such a great song. Yes. It still endures to this right. day. And yeah, it, it was the Pete Townsend song. Yeah, yeah. and was that at yeah. all weird? Having Pete write a song for Roger on his solo album was that a leftover Who song? How did that even happen? No, no, it happened like this. Um, we were really, we did ask Pete. We honored Pete and said, "If you want to write one for this, we'd love to have something from you." When he sent me the tape, I, I thought, "Is he on drugs?" Hmm. I, I didn't. I, I, it was such a bad sounding recording. I could hardly make. I wish I had these because they were on cassettes, John, and I, I, they've all gone by the wayside in, in massive moves. You know, it's been 30 sure. years sure. or whatever. But um, he sent me this thing. It was like a hurdy-gurdy. It was almost like a, just a drone with him. I could just make out what he was doing and it, I could make the melody. So I took it home and pretty much arranged it on the piano mm. and then went to the studio and took it to the band because it came in in 11th hour it was the last tune that was presented to the album interestingly mm. so we cut we cut it i arranged everything on it and, and then i put that tune on it 
that tune was kind of suggested in the hurdy-gurdy. There's, a, there's an Ebo tune. That, that, and I actually did get one of the big country guys. Uh, uh, Tony uh, Butler? No, Tony Bruce played Watson. the bass. Yep. He, Bruce Watson played the Ebos on it. Okay. Tony did not play it. It was John Sigler who played bass. On oh, okay. okay. But uh, yeah, I, I played the piano on it. Nick Glennie Smith did a lot of the sequencing. Nick Glennie, G L E N N I E Smith, is now Hans Zimmer's musical director. Oh, wow. Okay. Huh. Yeah, so he's been a dear friend of mine since back, back in the day and did a lot of records with me. And okay. I see them. I don't know whether you've seen that show, but Mm-mm. I would. It's a religious experience. Okay, great. But uh, anyway, sorry. So back in, in into after the fire. So here's a great story um, as well. Uh, we were obviously, you know, wanting Pete to like it. Roger played it to him at Live Aid. Mm-hmm. Mm. That was 1984. They played Live Aid. That was the big Live Aid that they did for Africa. I think you may remember this. I, of course I do. It was 85, yeah. actually. But yeah. Uh, sorry, 85. Yes. Yeah. It, it was a milestone. And mm-hmm. that's when, that's, sorry, not 90. I'm thinking of Meatloaf. It's, it's 85 now. Yeah. And then we did actually a small tour together um, with in the North of the United States. It was about six dates only. Mm. Mm. Um, we did Philadelphia. We did Boston. We did Albany. We did, I played keyboards of all things on this tour. Cause Roger said, I'm not going unless you go. <laughs> Cause you arrange, you arrange the record. I said, well, in that case I'll go. So we got, we couldn't get Mark to play cause Mark was playing with big country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we got a, we got our dear friend, Stuart Elliott, who played originally with Cockney rebel. Mm. And then he did all those Kate Bush records. Mm. Oh, I love Kate Bush. Fab, fabulous work. Fabulous body of work. And yeah. Stuart was one of my favorite drummers. He, I would use him when I could, but we used him live in the band. Russ Ballard came. Yeah, I love Russ. I've had him on here too. From, from Argent. Yep. He came. He played live in the band. We did a, we did a few of his songs on, on the set. Yep. Um, uh, my, my dear friend Mark Williamson was the backup singer that I always used. He came on that. Mm. So, and then dear Clem Clemson, who was mm. humble. Yeah. Um, let me ask so you he, a he question about one of these songs. That, that was the, the, the live band. Yes, okay. Please. Yeah. Well, um, so there's a song on the album, Let Me Down Easy, that's written by, I believe, Jim Valance and Brian Adams, I believe. Right. This yeah. is a great, this is, this is a great story. Okay. Because that song yeah. sounds a lot like their hit, Somebody. It was on his Absolutely. song, his album Reckless the year before. Does. Absolutely does. And he also wrote a song on there called Rebel as well. Yep, yep. And that's on yeah. that's yeah. on a later Brian Adams album, uh, Into the right, Fire. Right, yeah. right, Yeah, so let How me tell this you happen? this story. Yeah, bring it. This was a, this was a great story. Um, so I was liaising with Jim okay. um, all the time about the songs because um, <clears throat> we... we Again, we were looking for writers because it was one of my commissions. So I said I, to Roger, I'm going to call Jim Balance. I said, they write incredible stuff. I said, I think they would be great on this. And then Jim said, we'll definitely write two songs for you. And by the way, Brian wants to come in and play and, 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 and be with you, you know, on it. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's mm-hmm. awesome. I said, great. 
you know. Anyway, I still hadn't spoken to Brian at this point. It was just Jim. So, um, all in all, we made we made the stuff, um, um, and and Brian didn't end up playing on the record. Actually, he, okay. he just was in he was in the video, but when we got to the video shoot, we were doing it live. I think it was. Uh, gosh, I can't remember where. I think it was. Here's, here's another great story. It's <laughs> a great story. Um, we got to, I think it was Twickenham. We were in the south of London on a on a on a massive stage with a five camera shoot, you know. Mm-hmm. And Brian was coming in for the first time. It was the first time I met him. Well, they they came up on the stage and you know they said Brian Adams, this is Alan Shacklock, and he went what? Because I remember now, I hadn't spoken to him. I'd, I'd just uh-huh. been speaking to Jim. And he went, the Alan Shacklock? No said, way. Come on. I said, come on. I said, what are you saying? <laughs> he said, Babe Ruth. Oh! Went, you, have to, you have to be kidding me. And he, I said, of course, you're Canadian. Yes, you and, mentioned and that and earlier, see, that they were, you guys our, were big our, in Canada. Our, al- our album was massive in Canada. It, 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 we'd done a gold record in Canada on that first page. We've got a gold record. Yeah. So he said, yeah, he said, I've got all your records, man. And it was a great meeting. You know, it was such a great, because I hadn't, I'd only spoken to Jim at this time. Uh-huh. <laughs> you uh-huh. Know? uh-huh. Well, here's, here's another great story that I did go over with Roger, and I'm sure he won't mind, but um, Roger was nowhere to be seen on this video shoot. Hmm. Uh, so I, I, you know, was the producer. So I called the management company. I said, where's Roger? They said, well, he left his house like two hours ago. He should have been there like an hour ago. And I said, well, he's not shown up. And mm-hmm. I said, I hope everything is okay. Now this is before cell phones and cars and all that, you know, yeah. we didn't have that. So I, I, I said to the, the management, I said, well, shall I call the wife? And I called the house, and they said, yeah. And she, and she said, yeah, he left two hours ago. I said, well, I hope he's all right. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the story. He got to the gates of the place, and a truck driver, I'll use the American terminology, had cut him off. Oh, no. At the gate. And Roger was a hothead when he drove. I thought <laughs> when he drove me in his car, I was going to die every time. I thought, <laughs> I'm going to die tonight. Because he's such a he's a crazy, impatient driver. Well, turns out he had got out of his car and had a fight with the truck driver oh, in no the way. cab of the in the cab of the truck <laughs> oh and gosh. nailed the driver, nailed the driver, <laughs> right? That's and great. the driver, of course, had, had hit Roger. And what it turned out to be is Roger was in makeup for two hours, not telling anybody before the video shoot. Getting all the cuts. No way. Over, <laughs> over. This is rock and roll. Oh my this gosh, that's crazy. At, at its best time. And I then love he came it. and I said, Where I, I said, Where the fuck have you been? Yeah. He said, he said, I've been in makeup. He said, I had a fight. <laughs> oh, that's insane. Because, you know, Roger was a street kid. Sure. Know, from Shepherd's Bush in yeah. London. He, he was one of those scrappers. Sure. You know, he, was, he was a scrapper. It doesn't surprise you know, me, actually. Like, it yeah. never left him. You know, yeah. this is here's a man who's at this point 42 years old. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. Wow. Yeah, yeah. 
and okay. rock and roll stories in yeah, tune. So it. that's kind of that's kind of you know, and then other songs you know came on that record, John, just to bring it back. And yeah. then, you know, please please ask now. I'll, I'll answer. Well, so let me so let's go on to the next album, which I I also love. Okay. Um, right. I, this was a really this was all my fault. I take the whole blame oh, for this next one. Interesting. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a, a really also a pressure as one does from Doug Morris and the record company to get Roger a hit record. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, a pop hit record. He had had some minor solo hits. Leo Sayer with, with, had written that he was, he had an album called Rider Rock Horse where mm-hmm. actually Russ had written a song when he was in the movie McVicker, mm-hmm. not Russ, but Roger was about a boxer. Yeah. And he, he wrote a song called Free Me, which is a really great song. Uh, Russ, uh, we approached again. He had written Hearts of Fire for this yep. album. Great song. Yeah, which I felt was a hit. I don't know why it wasn't. It was one of those osmosis things. That mm-hmm. I had. It was, it had, Every element, it had the signature riff, it had the whole Who vibe, it had everything, but it, the record. And again, I, I, I will say this, Roger was this kind of guy who said, get me a hit record and I'll tour. Mm-hmm. You, you can quote this, get okay. me a hit record and I'll tour. Well, Bill Kirbishley would say, no, that's not the way around it goes. Mm. You tour, you tour to get a hit record. Yeah. Roger wanted the hits first, so, and then he would yeah, go. Yeah, he wanted. He wanted. He would. Yeah, and then he say, "I'll go." Because yeah. you know, they've been. It was very difficult for for him. Although you know, the the small tour we did in in the states was so great. We did. Mm-hmm. I love the theaters. I love the theaters in the north. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the south. You know, the Fox theaters. Those theaters. Sure. Like we played a. We played the Orpheum in Boston. We. I, I'm trying to remember. And we ended up in Madison, Madison Square Garden. Was just great because sure. big country, big country oh, open for Oh, whoa, amazing! And Mark, Mark and Stuart played together on on Under a Rating Moon. And oh, it was just a great moment. It was amazing. a great moment. Mm. Honestly, this was sorry going back to that other. Anyway, the next record, I again commissioned all the writers on that record. We'd gone. Roger really liked a, a, a writer called Kit Hayne. Kit Hayne so wrote I, "Ready I, for Love." Yes. Now that was fabulous song in my book. I I just felt okay. Doug Morris was pressuring me to bring out the ballads, mm-hmm. you know, because he said I know he can do a ballad. He, he he did a he had a a minor hit in the states. Um, I'm trying to remember the title of it. You maybe can help me. The price of love. That. No, that was on our record. Yeah, that was on that, that album. Was on our, okay. Yeah, that, that was on that album. The, 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 I can't remember the one. Let me see. I've got it. Okay. Here we go. When the Thunder Comes oh. was, from, was by Chaz Sanford. Chaz Sanford now has become a real dear friend of mine from then. He lives in Nashville. Hmm. Chaz was involved <clears throat> with producing Chicago, but I think the two things that you will remember Chaz by was he wrote Missing You for John Waite. Oh, okay. And then he also, yeah. he also wrote um, uh, Stevie Nicks. Um, 
Bounce on Wires was by Talk um, to Me. Don, that was the Stevie Nicks song. Talk, Talk to, to Me. me that, was yeah. the, that was the big song. Yeah, yeah. that's Chaz. That's it. Uh, he sent us a demo of When the Thunder Comes, and I said, we've got to bring this guy over. Yeah. I said, he's just inc- he's an incredible player. And I said, he just needs to be involved in the record, so I'll co-produce with him. And that, that, that was, I did mm. definitely want to do that. Uh, Ready for Love was probably one of the strongest songs in my book. Balance on Wires was by Don uh, Snow. He was uh, in a and, band and, and, in the early 80s called the Sinceros that I like a lot. Yes. And he yeah, also played well, like in the Squeeze, too. with Squeeze for a while. And so I thought he yeah, would be, yeah, yeah. what better, you know. Excellent, excellent keyboard player. I'd love to talk to he's him, but he excellent. won't talk to me. Yeah, yeah, no, he he, he won't. Um, okay, John, I'm going to try to go down these tracks. Um, yeah, Balance on Wires, it was just a great, mm-hmm. a great song. It was love really... It. It was a vibey, cool song. Miracle of Love came from left field. I don't, I don't think I did that one. Hmm. I don't think I produced that song. I didn't, in fact. It was by Jimmy Scott. It, it was a whole LA thing that they were trying to get a hit with. Okay. And they kind of add, added it in. It wasn't to do with me. Huh. Um, I did uh, produce The Price of Love. That's I, one of my, I love that song. I love it. Yeah, and it was I in the Secret of My Success, that Michael J. Fox right, movie. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love that right. song. And and then uh, Alone in the Night, that was a fantastic song. Mm-hmm. Now, at this time, I had struck up a, a relationship with the writers, um, Tommy... Um, Whitlock? Richie Zito? No, 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 no. No, let me. Richie Zito was on on one of these songs as well. Uh, this would be Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly. Oh, Tom Kelly, sure. Mm-hmm. Right, they wrote "Lover's Storm." Yeah, yeah. And then "Take Me Home" was an interesting one because it was written by actually a a playwright. He'd written uh, Nigel. And it's stretching me. I can't remember the name. Uh, but he, we got this off the wall kind of groove thing, hmm. and take me home was that, and we got an insane. I I sat down with Richard Niles, and Richard Niles was the arranger for Grace Jones pull up to the bumper. <laughs> incredible, <laughs> incredible it. horn, incredible horn arranger, and uh, we. I kind of I was singing him the lines literally on a Sunday night. I remember on the phone <laughs> going, mm-hmm. "I need this." And he was writing them down as I was singing the lines over the phone to him. And he said, I'll, I'll have it by, by tomorrow. And he literally arranged a, a whole brass section of 10 people. Mm. Uh, uh, incredible. But the, all the top players in London, just phenomenal session. Yeah. Uh, wow. and, and that was that was a very, very exciting session for, for me. Um, yeah, so we struck up relationships on that. Um, uh, but Tom and and Billy really schooled me through a lot of stuff. They they trained. I was a young producer, John, John at this time. You know, mm-hmm. I was very free or something. You know, I was just learning my my craft. You know, and mm-hmm. Billy and and honestly, they we would talk to them and and you know they said we will write for you. And I said that's awesome. I you know mm-hmm. Terry Britton as well was one of my favorite writers. I did mm-hmm. go to Terry. You know. And, 
we didn't quite make that happen. But you know, so these were all phenomenal writers yeah. in my book. Yeah. You know, Terry wrote Terry wrote the Thunderdome for Tina and Turner, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I have a Jeff Beck story. Oh, bring it. <laughs> do you want do you want to carry on? Well, let me uh let me let's wrap up this album real quick. So um something I wanted to ask you about regarding Roger specifically. I um yeah. there's no question that he's a legend and he's one of the yeah. seminal voices in rock history. But the poor yeah, guy can't write his own music and he only seems no, to be no. as good as the people that he works with. And it's a right. it's a it, to me it's kind of an Achilles heel for a guy who yeah. should be and that's why you know it's unfortunate because that's why he's so reliant on who reunion yeah. tours and stuff like that to yeah. pay yeah. his bills yeah. when Pete can just sit home on his royalties and stuff like that. It's a sh- yeah. I wonder how much more powerful Roger could have been if he had been able to learn to write his own songs. Secondly, when I interviewed oh. Russ Ballard, Russ had suggested yeah. that Roger. He thinks Roger should just sing like an old blues album, you know, give him some classic blues songs and let him take, you know, go to town on those. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, I had put um, something to the record companies at the time when I started working with Jeff Beck. Um, I had said, let me put Jeff Beck, Cozy Powell, Mm. John Entwistle and Roger in a room for two days and let them knock out rock and roll mm. and record it. There you go. And I said they can knock themselves out with blues, with Eddie Cochran. They could do any Elvis, anything they want. And I said, we'll come out with a record. CBS had Jeff signed at the time, which was now Sony. <clears throat> Roger was signed to Atlantic. Doug Morris said, phenomenal idea. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, CBS was Clive Davis, I think, at the time. And he said, phenomenal idea. We want it. Neither of the others would back down mm. with the other. Oh, so it became a stalemate, unfortunately. You're on, a, you're on to a great, Russ was right. You know, put him in a, put him in a room and let him sing Muddy mm. Waters. Oh, yeah. That album, the, uh, the, the uh, Can't Wait to See the Movie, was not a successful record, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and probably mo- mostly my fault, but only being under pressure in my defense from the record company trying to get desperately getting a hit. Mm. And, and Roger wasn't that guy. He was a he was known as a rocker, mm-hmm. and you know, Under a Raging Moon was much more in that vein. So it did a gold record in the United States. I'm very proud of it. You know. So. Yeah, it's weird to me that. I so let me let me. I hope this does. I, 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 I do take I do take massive compliment in you liking the second record. Thank I do for the fine words, and that's and, and I think I I think we did a good job. I think I think it was one of those things that just got through the net. Yeah, slipped through the net. So this is my question yeah. because I remember when that album came out, and I remember unfortunately it getting a bad review in Rolling Stone magazine which I was, you know, it was like a Bible. To yeah, me. I think, I think I remember that. Too. And, uh, yeah. and it's still not highly regarded. And yet, uh, reading that, finding that out almost made me, it provoked me to want to hear it even more. And so maybe right. because of that, I've always really liked this album. And I feel like yeah. it sounds in keeping with the best rock albums of those times. There's, 
saxophone yeah. solos and there's keyboards, yeah. Oh, yeah, but there's yeah, also yeah. a lot of guitars. Yeah, it, I mean, there's the hallmarks of the era, but they're all really good. Yeah. And so I've never understood yeah, if, yeah. if people expected something different from Roger and this wasn't good enough or yeah. what the, the problem very, was the very, because it's solid. Right. Understood. The very, the very words you're saying was my whole purpose. And thank you. Yeah. Even if you dislike it, thank you from me. No, I love I, it. I, I, I'm, I'm, Really proud of it. I think we did a great job. I think it is good. You know, there are some fillers. I think you. Well, you know, there, there is on every album, though. That, it's not perfect, but it's some, fun. Yeah, it's it, good. Yeah, nothing is nothing is rumors or Jesse Winters. Sure. You know? So, so we, we, we. I feel that you know we. It was a dignified job, and I think for what we were given the brief, we filled it. Yeah, we got it. I agree. You know? And it it was very movie. That's why he called yeah. it that. He said each 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 track could have been, you know, a movie. So Roger kind of came up with that title, but it's silly. Cool. But yeah, I mean, it no, it works. Like we did it. Okay. But we we left friend. We left friends. We are still Good. friends. Uh, I still see him when I can. Uh, Good. You know. Now to answer your question about him being a writer, I'll come to that one. Yeah. If, you, if I can answer. Yeah, that. please. It, it it obviously was very difficult for him. And I probably would have felt the same living in the shadow of Pete Townsend. Mm, maybe, yeah. All those, all those years, it. I, I'll probably use the word intimidating because I think mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. It would have intimidated me if I, if somebody had presented me with, I don't know, whatever substitute. Right. My right. God, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, any of those ones. You know, I'm a boy. I mean, mm -hmm. you go back and and then write in Tommy. Yeah. You know. Uh, it, it, it's like another iconic Leonard Bernstein. I mm -hmm. mean, it's almost Rogers and Hart. It's that good. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's every bit as iconic. Roger really wasn't a poet. You know, he mm -hmm. would, I, I, I tried to write a song with him. In fact, I did write a song with him called It Don't Satisfy Me. I came up with his title, mm -hmm. you know, because that was that song. Yeah. And, and I said, you know, fill in the lyrics. And, you know, Roger, you know, he, he no disrespect, he, he's a rocker, you know, he tried to do it. And I said, it sounds good to me. Mm -hmm. You know, and I said, we'll, we'll put it on. I said, it's a great, he loved the groove. He loved all the arrangement. And I said, you know, we can, we can do something like, almost like, um, my general, you know, the, the yeah. thing of my generous, it doesn't sure. satisfy, you know, mm -hmm. it, and that's where we went with that. Okay. But, um, all right, let's, let's, let's jump to Jeff Beck. Yeah. Tell us the Jeff Beck story. Ready with this? I'll yeah. tell you some hair rate. I'll tell you some hair rate. <laughs> oh, by the way, I want to quote, I want to quote this from Meatloaf. Okay. Meatloaf in his book said, Alan Shacklock was absolutely the wrong producer for me. Oh boy! And he said, "You can, you can, you can, you can write this. This is fine. This is what. It's, look at his book." And he said he was fast and furious rock and roll. But I am, I'm stage drama. I'm not sure that's quite, quite the the the, the verbiage. <laughs> but I think, I think it was that. So you were just too rock and roll for him. It was a backhand compliment, but it was yeah. also saying that I didn't understand his theatrics. Right. Okay. Whatever. You know, and, and <laughs> that that was that. And we've missed out Andrew Lloyd Webber, by the way. Oh, you worked with him too? 
Oh, yes, sir. Oh, my gosh. Well, tell us Jeff Beck yeah. and then tell us Andrew Lloyd Webber. Let's get, let, let's get, let's get and then I have one more album I want to ask you about, by the way. Yeah, of course. So okay. We'll jump back to Andrew. We'll jump back to Andrew. All right, Jeff. So Jeff lives three miles from Roger Daltrey. They have dinner together all the time. Mm. And Roger said, Shaq looks good. You should call him. So Jeff phoned me at home and said, this is Jeff Beck. And he said, do you want to do some music with me? I said, where, where are you? I'll be there in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is my, this is my boyhood hero. Sure. And, and all of, all of us, surely. I mean, you know, this is just too good to be true and no record companies involved at this point and no management. It's just like meatloaf. So I said to Jeff, uh, called me and I, and literally I went and saw him, you know, that within the hour, Mm-hmm. And we cooked up some things. He said, "Well, I've got I've got some tasks for you." And, he, and I said, "Okay, well, let me know what you want to do." And he said, "Well, we're going. We're taking the band to Japan. It was Terry Bozio. Oh. I think it was Jan Hammer. That band. I mm-hmm. think he was taking that band to Japan." And he said, "We want a single to release in Japan. And then what I'll do is we'll make the single with a B side, and then." we'll come back and continue if you're good with that and, yeah. and everything goes well. I said, all right, well, wonderful. Um, so I said, what do you want as a single? What, what's, what's on the table? He said, well, he said, we do, do this version of wild thing. And I said, well, is that something? He said, I love it. He said, I love doing it. And he said, uh, do you think you could just give it a different slant? You know? And I mm-hmm. said, yeah, I said, I'll try some things. And then so I worked some things and I brought it back to the table. And I said, you know, we, I said, what do we do with this? I mean, we can't do the bloody trogs. Right. So he said, no. But he said, he said, but, you know, let's, let's make a, another groove, like a badass groove. And I said, all right, I'll get Tony Beard, who was my dear friend, who played on, on uh, Can't Wait to See the Movie. Mm-hmm. Tony was a phenomenal drummer. We uh, couldn't get Mark at the time, but Tony was every bit as good for this. John Siegler played the bass, and John Van Tongeren played the keyboards. Mm. John is fame is an LA keyboard player who played for Quincy. Mm. He also played for. I met him out there when I did a record with Mark Williams. This, this is. I got in with the LA crew a little bit. So John and I became great friends, and he played on the Pointer Sisters stuff. Oh, sure. All the all the keyboard keyboard parts. Yeah. So I said, would you consider coming to England? I said, we'll fly you. So we flew John and John Siegler to England, and then Jeff and Tony Beard were the band on this. So I said, let's arrange this thing. I'll do some modulations in it, and. Let's just try. And Jeff really floated on it. He said, I love this. I love what you're doing. Great, great, great. Um, And I said, right, what about the vocal? And he said, well, he said, I'm not a vocalist. I said, okay, um, uh, have you got any suggestions? He said, well, here's how the story comes around. Mm -hmm. He said, Tina Turner owes me a favor. (laughs) He said, I I played on a, a song of hers. I believe it was called Steel Claw. This is all coming off my head. Claw, Claw, sorry, my bad English accent. C-L-A-W. Right. So um, um, he said, here's a number, call her. She lived in Holland Park in London. 
<laughs> so I phoned the house, you know, and I said, is Miss Turner in? I said, this is Alan Shacklock. I'm producing Mr. Beck. Mr. Beck wants to invite Miss Turner down to uh, sing on this record. I said, we'll send you a limousine, anything you need. We'll come and pick you up. And she said, this was her assistant. And she said, hold on a minute. So she was five minutes. I was waiting about five. It was a long time to wait. Sure. I thought, this is, this is a dead duck. So uh-huh. she said, Miss Turner, Turner said, please give her best regards to Mr. Beck that she's leaving for Paris tonight in 30 minutes and cannot do it. Is there another time? And I said, well, Mr. Beck's traveling to Japan and needed the vocal on. Right. Now, this uh-huh. was the days before internet. We could have done this in a in a second on the internet back yeah, in the day. And it was yeah. always like, anyway, we missed it by just that much. I mean, it was 30 minutes. So um, I said to Jeff, I said, have you ever sung through a vocoder? And he went, no, what's that? And I said, well, I'll get you one. So I called, there was a fellow called Niels Lofgren. Oh, sure. Month. Of course. And yes. I, I, borrowed, I borrowed Niels vocoder and I plugged Jeff's guitar to it and he loved it he did the whole thing like the voice box almost like right. Clampton did yeah. you know? so that's how we produced that vocal and, I mean Jeff loved it because he was singing what he was playing no never done that before. oh man so so it was a wild wild ride <laughs> and, and, and it, we just did this crazy version and then we did a thing called Sonic Overload he had this whole insane riff that was all done with hammer-ons, and we, we recorded that. Now, that came out on the European version, I think. Okay. Or it may have just, it may have just come out. It didn't make the Beckology record hmm. here. There's a record called Beckology, which looks like a Fender guitar case. Right. You may have seen that. I have, yeah. You can yeah. find it on the, on the internet. Yep. Well, but they ended up putting Wild Thing on that, and then Jeff said, all right, great i'll see you in three months and we'll continue i said wonderful well when they went to japan i got into another gig with a band called it bites hmm. it bites was signed to virgin i know that means something else in the states but it bites was signed to virgin uh records this, this is another good story if you want it but i got into that record when jeff came back he said okay i'm ready and i said i'm in the middle of this thing he said, no, I need to go. I need to go. I'm sorry. He said, you know, I just need to get this record out. Yeah. So he ended up, I think he got Nile Rodgers. Oh, yeah. Nile Rodgers. I love I think Nile Rodgers. I think you, I think, oh, did you he, I think it was that record that happened kind of in the interim yeah. of Beck's Guitar Shop. You can look all the right. order. Right, okay. I will, that. I will. So we, le- we left on great terms. Good. Um, we, uh, I said, I'm so sorry. We obviously very disappointed. We couldn't carry on. Let me tell you the story now that is the hair raiser that I yeah, heard please. pretty much verbiage. <laughs> okay, while while he when he played for Tina Turner, Jeff asked her. Uh, you might be able to find this in history books, but I'm going to give you my version. Okay, that he told he told me verbally. He said. I asked Tina Turner to sign my guitar. And at that point, he was playing an orange Hamer guitar, I think. Okay. If I, I want to say it was, a, it was like an orange Tiger Eye, beautiful mm. wood. So 
he showed me the guitar. So he said she went got a sharpie out of her, you know. Uh-huh. He said no. That, he said no. That's going to smudge. He said I was hoping for something more permanent. So she got a flick knife, what you call a switchblade, <laughs> right. out of her out of her uh, handbag, uh-huh. and then spent the rest of the session inscribing Tina Turner into this guitar. <laughs> well. Um, here's the rub of the story, and it brings Diana Ross back in the picture. Oh, interesting. I think a, a little bit later, you might want to check the dates, but a later stage, Jeff was invited to New York to play on a Diana Ross record. So I think there were the power station or something. You can you can look this up and mm-hmm. find this in the history books, John. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can quote it, because he told me. So when he was in the in the tracking part of the studio diana showed up and he was using the guitar with tina turner inscribed on it Mm -hmm. so diana said to the producer this is apparently how it went down tell him to change the guitar no way (laughs) so the the producer sort of knowing her reputation she's quite prickly yep so producer said, well, Jeff Beck, you know, she said, yeah. I don't care. She said, tell him to change the fucking guitar or I'm out of here. So <laughs> doesn't surprise he got me. on the button. He, he gets on the button gingerly to Jeff on the headphones. He says, hey, Jeff, do you think we might use another guitar? And Jeff says, ah, this is, this is the baby, you know, this, yeah. is, this is why it's for this. Yes, you know, you're talking to Jeff Beck, he knows his guitar. Of course, of course. <laughs> so she, she left. Oh my gosh. Now, did he not even record or was she just not willing to be in the room when he recorded the solo? I I think he did record. She just, she, she couldn't handle it. (laughs) That is insane. Oh, these people sometimes. And he, he told me that story verbatim. So, you know, I I, I don't mind you printing. Yeah. Okay. Good. But you know, it's, 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 that was me. Oh my gosh. Okay. I love that. uh, Okay. I want to ask you about one more album. And we don't even have to talk about it for too long because, frankly, and it's not your no, fault, it's not that good of an album. But I want to talk about Dennis DeYoung's Boom Child album. Real quick. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm proud of that. Oh, are you? Okay. I'm, I, I'm, proud, of, I'm proud of that. I, I, I felt honored to work with Dennis. Dennis, Dennis is a, a thinking, intelligent, extremely fast-thinking, humorous human being. Yeah. He is an incredible officer and a gentleman, and he could have had a career in stand-up had he not done it's, what it's he that did. Way. I like him he, a lot he, as a. He seems like a real fun, interesting guy to be around. You, if you ever, if you ever get to, please try to interview. Okay. He he was he was a fabulous person to work with. It good. was really really good experience and. He's a great writer. He also intelligently figured out the two albums I produced for Roger. He delved. Mm. That's just for the internet. You know, he, mm-hmm. he did his homework and said, this guy was the common denominator in these albums. And I love, he said the, almost exactly the same use as you said. He felt that the two yeah. that was strong. And he, he, he found me as the, you know, not blowing my trumpet again. Sure, in all but it's humility. true. You're the guy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so he said, I want this guy. So he flew me to Chicago, where they're from. We met. I said, okay, 
what have you got? Because he's a writer. Mm-hmm. So we had no problem with songs. He, he'd written all the, all the stuff. And we started to, you know, really form that record. And I, I was fairly, I was fairly, you know, I, really proud of it. Oh, I, good. I just felt we, we, we did a great record. Uh, one of the, my favorite tracks has to be Who Shot Daddy, mm-hmm. who we did a horn arrangement on it. I helped him do a real horn arrangement. And we hired this young man, young Jewish man called Howard Levy. Hmm. Howard Levy plays for Bella Fleck and the Fleck Oh, Club. interesting. Okay. Uh, he was a renowned pianist, but moreover, he is a badass harmonica mm. player like you wouldn't believe. Okay. Have a listen to the solo on Who Shot Daddy. Okay. Um, he came in, another great story, he came in, played, and of course those guys like treat their harmonicas like their little babies. Right. They trim them and they, right. they move them. And he told us a story about him someone stole his harmonica case with all his stuff in it. Hmm. They sold it over a bar in Chicago for 20 bucks. The barman knew Howard. Oh, wow. And, and bought it and gave it back to him. No way. Oh my gosh. Fabulous, fabulous story. (laughs) That's amazing. Absolutely fabulous story. And, and Howard's an officer and a gentleman and I do thank him. And good. He's one. Of, he's one of the most. Uh, as Bella Fleck is, yeah. you know, one of those just savants. You you yeah. just can't. You, yeah. you, there's no way you can okay. put your finger on that one. Andrew Lloyd Webber, real quick. Yeah, real quick. Okay. Tell us. Uh, all right, here we go. So, um, they approached me to make Andrew Lloyd Webber pop. Mm. He he did. I I produced and helped. I produced actually one song officially which came out as a single, but I helped the rest of the record called Starlight Express mm-hmm. in England for the England version. Phil Ramone did the American version. So mm. I helped helped form and shape. Andrew Lloyd Webber before this was known as kind of, let me use your vernacular, elevator music. Right, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Okay, it, it was almost like he was, you know, that this kind of cheesy... Mm-hmm. No disrespect, because, sure. you know, he'd done Jesus Christ Superstar and, you know, Joseph and all that right. kind of stuff. Right. But um, anyway, he was a very difficult man to work with with me because he was a man with no rhythm. Oh, interesting. Huh. He was a fairly decent piano player, but he had a way of stealing melodies like you wouldn't believe. It was fabulous. And he... If you listen to Memories, is is um sorry, my my bad singing. Don't put that on. That's <laughs> okay. But uh, <laughs> but but um, but uh, he um, he actually uh, had approached me to you know do this record and, and make it pop, and he wasn't used to it. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did, I gave him a copy of Thriller. Oh which was the record at the time. That yeah. was the big deal at the time. I said, listen to this. I said, this is where we kind of need to be. I said, it's going to be an uphill climb. But, and of course we had to join it with the actual stage show. That, that wasn't easy. Right. You know, and, and then like, for instance, a great story. There were three black guys in the show. 
who came out and spoke poetry together on a microphone. You've got to remember, this is 1984 in England. Right. Okay, so we haven't even seen rap yet. White Lions haven't come out yet, mm-hmm. you know. So Melly Mel had not, had not, right. had not emerged. Right. We're, we're making this record. So I, when we were in rehearsal at Olympic Studios, all the cast were there, like 35 cast. I said to the drummer, Peter Van Hook, who played for Van Morrison originally, I said, put a beat behind the poetry. So he started this phenomenal, funky rap beat, which we now know. And they started to speak over it in time. Whoa. So I, I said, all right, wait. I said, Andrew's not here. When he comes in, we're going to hit him with this. It's going to be tough for him. But the cast were going crazy. They were screaming. They were going, oh, man, this is phenomenal. Uh-huh. And of course, what we would, what we had done is run DMC. Uh-huh, yeah. We, 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 pre- we pretty much made run. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Sounds like it. So, so, you know, and I was very aware of Africa Bombata because of all the sampling of my stuff. Sure, right. You know, and all that stuff that was happening in the 70s in the Bronx. So I was going... Let, this is cutting edge. Let's do this. Yeah. So Andrew came in and I said, look, I've got something to play. Here. And everybody's like waiting there with bated breath to see what he said. So they laid it down, man. And that was just a funky ass group. Oh, I nice. mean, really it was. And he said, no, 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 no. Far oh. too rhythmic, far too rhythmic. And just shut it down. Oh. <laughs> so John, that, some you win. Yes. <laughs> Sounds but like if he'd, uh, brought, if he'd if he'd have brought that out, man, we'd have had yeah. the Beastie Boys. We'd we'd have had. <laughs> Can you, know, you imagine? Honestly, we'd have had. Oh yeah, Andrew and Lloyd Webber being the gateway such, to like hip hop. Uh, oh, absolutely, in the English hip hop. He would have done it, and and it would have been it would have been the thing. Anyway, Jeffrey Daniel was in a band called Shalimar. You uh-huh. may remember I love. Back Sh- in the I remember day. both. I love them. Yeah. I love I love that and the, and the lady singer was awesome. Jo, uh, Jody Watley. Joe Jody Watley, yeah, yeah, incredible. Well, jo, uh, Jeffrey was the lead guy in the show, uh-huh. and he came and sang that record, and the whole cast was on it, and Sarah Brightman sang fabulously yeah. over it and sang some crazy E flat note that would make your doggy scream. Sure. So that, so that, so that, that's the, that's the story. Anyway, wow. So wow. I, I spent a long, long time with that. Yeah. But thank, thanks for this. Thank you, Alan. I, uh, this, I had this no has been idea. An incredible. You, you, <laughs> can I just commend you on your homework? I mean, oh, you thank just you. Re- um, pr- please print this or, or put this on the radio, whatever yeah. you can do. But, but, um, you know, honestly, and I apologize about the language. Um, oh, don't! I, 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 nothing compared I, I, to I most did, people. I did. Uh, I did. Um, I, you know, use verbatim. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I appreciate it, so, Alan. I was so but, glad. I, I should just mention it in case I didn't say it earlier. Michael Radcliffe is one of our listeners, and he contacted yes. me months ago, and he, I guess, had oh, yes, yes. done some yeah. drumming yeah, with well, you he, on a session, and he oh, said, "You got to talk to Alan Shacklock." He is a dear friend and a phenomenal drummer. Good. And a, and a, an incredible, um, I don't know how to put it, carpenter, I guess. Okay. Interesting. Well, good. Yeah, he recommended uh, and, that we talk. And I th- had no idea th- what I would thank, be getting. Thank you. And I will thank him for this as yeah. well. 
And I'm sorry, I'm sorry it took so long, but uh, oh, I do. Uh, I just appreciate for. your attention to detail. It's great. It's been I fun. It. I hope that I hope there are some things in there you can make. You know, it's like of nonstop, it and, nonstop gold. You didn't hit Mike Oldfield or Chesney Hawks. I know. Well, okay. I'm okay not, I don't got, know that much we, about Mike Oldfield, but I did want to ask you about. I, we should talk about Chesney Hawks yeah. real quick. Let's do that yeah. because I moved to yeah. England uh, actually in the summer of 1991. And it was yeah. right after Chesney had had his gigantic hit. In fact, when we moved there, yeah. Um, yeah. it was br- the summer of Brian Adams. Everything I do, I do it for you, yeah. was number one for like right. four straight right. months. Yeah. But yeah. Chesney was this, right. you know, this yeah. str- bolt of lightning well, that quickly sort of faded. This is a great story. Okay, this tell is, me. Tell I, me. Have, I have to, I have to, sorry to keep you. This this is a fabulous story. Okay, so we were. I was approached to do the soundtrack of a movie called Buddy's Song, that was the Who's management. Mm. The Who's management took Chesney's management over and and managed him. It was Bill Kerbishley and Robert Rosenberg, and they had approached me to do the soundtrack uh, of Buddy's Song. Roger had. Uh, done a tv series of this it was kind of we had a thing in england called grange hill i don't know what your equivalent in the Mm. states would be but it was almost like a six-part series almost like on an hbo or something like that well they they had got right they had got the budget to do a feature film so they off they offered me to produce and I said of course I'd love to do it so I started to work with Chesney Chesney at the time was 16 years old mm. his father was Len Hawks in the Tremolos they used mm. to call him Chip he was in the Tremolos who made a massive hit with uh, Four Seasons B-side called okay. Silence is Golden mm. uh, his his mother was um, on a show here the golden shot where there was a crossbow <laughs> and they would fire an apple from from the audience they you, you, the people would telephone in and say bernie the bolt and then she 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 was the she like she would be like kind of like your vanna white oh got it okay <laughs> okay uh-huh. so he had he had you know pretty much showbiz royalty as mum and dad um so Chesney eventually emerged. In, uh, he took an audition, and, and they they picked him up for the movie. Hmm. Roger liked him and got on with him. So Roger in the film was his acting father, a teddy boy father. Mm-hmm. All right. So coming on to the record, so we start to make the record. Some things Chesney had written. He was quite a good writer, hmm. and he'd co-written some stuff. But they were really looking for an absolute lead single. What during this time, I was approached to actually produce one of the artists I've always loved called Nick Kershaw. Oh, sure. I love Nick. Nick Kershaw had had hits with, you know, just fabulous hits. So, you know, nothing. Well, yeah. Sorry, wouldn't it be good to be in your sure. shoes? And the Riddle. The Riddle. You know, yeah, yeah Riddle is incredible stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I was a massive fan. Of, and I said, of course, I'd love to work with Nick. So I said, send me some stuff. They sent me three songs one of which was the one and only. Mm. So I said, can I have this for my, you know, I want to produce Nick, 
can I have this song for my artist right now? I said, there's a massive budget going behind it. I said, Chrysalis Records have signed it. Um, we are about to come out of the gate with a record. The record's going to be endorsed by Roger Daltrey because he's on, you know, on the right. movie soundtrack and all this. And, anyway, all that to say, um, they went, no, no. No. <laughs> So oh. I had to go through I had to go through the hoops and I said, Can I send it to the I I didn't ask them, I just sent it to the head of the record company, who was Peter Robinson at the time. And uh, in it and I said, This is an absolute number one smash. Yeah. And he yeah. said, I, I absolutely absolutely agree with you. I said, Let's fight for it, help me fight for it. So we went through the ropes, through the hoops with all the managements and all the different things and they said, Well, we want Nick to co-produce it and I said I don't care I said bring him in I said he's a phenomenal musician let him yeah. play on it let him sing on it and we'll produce this thing right so we got together and recorded the one and only uh, mm -hmm. under my production in Abbey Road Studios Chesney then went off to Spain with his girlfriend I think he was turning 17 or something Okay. during the making of the record we were asked I was asked to the manager's office in Abbey Road Studios, who was Ken Townsend, who worked with the Beatles back in the day. Mm. He, we, he was legendary on the Beatles recordings. And he said, I've got an unusual request. Come up to my office. So I went to his office. And there were two very serious looking gentlemen in his office wearing what we used to call Cluso Max, like uh, raincoats. Mm. Mm -hmm. And they said, we have a VIP visiting the studio in two weeks' time, and we are going to swear you to secrecy. Raise your right hand right now. <laughs> this is an abs absolute true story, and I'll send you photos and video if you want to. Oh, gosh. So they said, she will be coming, and I thought it was the Queen at first, uh -huh. but it was, actually, it was actually Margaret Thatcher. Oh. <laughs> so... We were sworn to secrecy, and on the day Thatcher came, uh, we couldn't bring our cars. There were police all over the building, all swarming. She just wanted to come and see where the Beatles recorded, that's all. Oh, my gosh. So I happened, I happened to be in the studio, but Chesney wasn't there, and we couldn't tell him because we were sworn to secrecy. Right. <laughs> so he was down on the beach in Spain with his girlfriend, you know, so this is this is pretty, this is pretty true story. So, so, so Thatcher came into my studio for 25 minutes. Also, CNN filmed it. Oh my god! It was going out. It was going out over here. So my American wife of the time, her family was seeing me on CNN. Right? Said, Why didn't you tell it? Why didn't you tell us? I said, No, I couldn't tell anyone. I was. I, I literally had to not do it because at that time it was a very dangerous time for the because the ira were very active yeah you know in yeah in and with the parliament you know what i mean and right they'd almost they, they got her husband they blew him you know they would right try to blow them up so you know not very nice people but anyway so um all this was going on because this was massive publicity for all this chesney's thing so Anyway, long story short, the record came out at this time. I personally was emigrating to the United States. I did in 1990. I came mm. to Nashville. Okay. So, um, oh, sorry, Atlanta first, uh -huh. Nashville setting. 
But um, the record came out was a very slow climber, very slow climber. Right. And then finally in February, I got the call that you've outsold Rod Stewart by four or something. And you're number one. <laughs> And, and you know, oh, great. God bless Rod Stewart. He had, he had that song called "The Rhythm of My Heart." I remember. Had all had had bagpipes. Yeah. All over. You put bag you put bagpipes bagpipes on something in England, and they all love it. You know, right. the, the mull of Kintyre and all that bullshit. Right. So anyway, it, it, sorry, no disrespect. These no, are all course. great records. Of course. But uh, honestly, you know. It's a great feeling uh, of getting that. And, and I believe, uh, don't quote me on this, but check it. Chesney was the youngest artist at the time, only only topped by Craig David, uh-huh. to be the youngest artist to stay at number one for about five weeks. Oh, my gosh. That's but insane. I, 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 and I can't believe that because Helen Shapiro, going back to the 60s, was number one forever I, I i didn't figure that out but yeah. we, we accepted the accolade. <laughs> oh that's and, and, amazing and, and and chesney's you know record it, it sold a million and yeah it was just i mean it was uh it Good was a you. great thing to be involved in and god bless he'll be singing it for the rest of his life yeah, he will. and also just so you know you were talking to me you mentioned to me about that one other thing being in a michael j fox movie well, ironically, Michael J. Fox was in England in 91. And he said, I want that on my movie called Doc Hollywood. And you did the music for that and Quicksilver. And Quicksilver Lightning, which was Giorgio Moroder. And that was back in when we were doing Under Under a Raging Moon. I yeah. had a band in for that. Yeah, John Parr does the right, theme song right, of Quicksilver. That's, that's right, that's yeah. right. So it all kind of, that's, you know, meshes in. That's what's know? been fun but talking did, with you because all these stories, yes, you could, yeah. you know, you oh, connect yeah. all these it, dots it, and everything. Hopefully, hopefully, it's it's something interesting to you people. But, it is. You know, it. it I I do. Try, I did try to make it star studded. So. You did it. You you succeeded. This is uh, great. I had no more, idea, Alan. Oh, I know. I mean, we 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 haven't even hit the hip hop. Oh, but, I know. I mean, it, it's 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 crazy nuts, but. John, thank you for the kind words. Thank you. Thank uh, you, and, Alan. And encouragement about the uh, the guitar playing. And I do still play. And, you know, so please know that that was it. And all the, you're very astute with the albums. You've done oh, well, great you. homework. Well, thank you're behind you so a lot of music that I love. It wasn't, it's not hard. Yeah. You know, this is the stuff yeah. I grew up yeah. on. So it's yeah, not I'm, hard I'm at so all. I'm so glad you got, you got to talk to the folks, you know. Yeah. to connect with this yeah and, and you know try to try to if you can connect i suggest maybe to dennis the young i you will know, to, you know to that, that kind of thing i like him a lot very interesting i will and I'll mike oldfield know. was another mike oldfield got bonnie tyler and he, she sang on his thing and i know we recorded that in france that was great and uh there's you know, a there's a bunch of other stuff I uh, I feel yeah, bad lot, keeping you for two and a half. Maybe we'll have to do a part two sometime because yeah. I would love that actually, if you're yes, open to sir, it someday. Yes, Absolutely, um, I, I I love talking about it and thank you for being so great. Absolutely, <clears throat> but anyway, thank you, well, John. Thank you, Alan. Again, there you have it, Alan Shacklock. Wasn't that a blast? I love those stories. Couldn't you see him at next year's Nashville Rock and Pod Expo? 
He lives in Nashville. I could just see him bouncing around to like a hundred different podcasts telling these stories. We're going to have to make that happen. He was amazing. I wanted to close it out with, I mentioned it in here. It's one of, it's probably my favorite Roger Daltrey solo song, The Price of Love. It's from the Secret of My Success soundtrack, or at least it was on that soundtrack. I love this. Alan produced it. So good. Those I don't care what people say. Those Roger Daltrey albums from the 80s rock. I love those. All right. Next week, we are going to hear from the man behind one of the biggest global number one one-hit wonder smashes of all time, and that's pretty much everything he ever did. I mean, he put out some other music, but nothing ever even came remotely close to his one big hit. So that's who we're going to hear from next week. Uh, You guys know how to find us by now. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can email us at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And a huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich, for producing the episode and putting everything together. If you're new to this, we put out new episodes every Tuesday. We will see you guys next week. Thanks, everybody.